and that 2-0 pitch was a beauty from Chapman. going to take a risk and do something that I never do and I am going to record the opening of the podcast before both of the interviews for the podcast are completed I don't do this ever because as Don and I used to always say the interview situation can often be very fluid People say they're in, people say they're in on Tuesday, they say they're in on Wednesday, then they're not in on Tuesday, they're in on Thursday, they're not in at all, they'll do it next week. It can be very, very fluid. But I want to take a risk today specifically because one interview is done and the other one I'm doing tomorrow afternoon and I'd like to post it right away as soon as that one's done. So I want to get everything else finished uh, so that I can move on. And post it right away because one, we haven't had a podcast in a couple weeks because of my traveling to New Orleans. And honestly, because of booking guests, I wanted to do one last week and it just didn't work out because people who I was counting on uh, to do it suddenly weren't available. Again, it's fluid. And uh, there's one person specifically who really screwed me and I'd love to call him out, but I love the person and he's been really good to me. So I'm not going to do that. Um, instead, we're going to focus on what we have, and that's this week's show. I'm sorry it's been a bit. It's the Sportscasters. We're into Season 9. Uh, I think this is Episode 20. I could be wrong about that. And we have a great show for you today. So, the interview that I'm taking the risk on, and of course, if it doesn't happen, you'll never hear this. So, I'll have to redo it anyway. Uh, but the first interview is one I'm proud of. It's the return of John Feinstein. Something I've said from the beginning of this show is I'm always proud to get something on for the first time, but I'm even more proud when they come back for a second or a third, even a 20th, like say a Lee Jenkins or a Jeff Perlman. I'm excited the second time because to me it's a validation. It's a validation that that first time they felt it was redeemable in some way, that it wasn't a waste of their time, that they enjoyed it enough to spend more time with me. John Feinstein, I reached out to him on text. The first interview was when he was promoting his book, Quarterback. And that was all set up through the publisher. But they did give me his numbers, obviously, to make the contact. And I never, ever delete a phone number or an email or anything like that. I save all that stuff. And I figured, you know what, I'm going to text him and see if he wants to come back and talk. It's a great time to do it with him. Uh, Major League Baseball just sort of an an article came out saying they may restructure uh, the minor league baseball system. He wrote the book on minor league baseball. So we're going to have him on hopefully to talk about that. It's just a great time. I don't want to get into too much about 
what we'll talk about because I don't know if we're actually going to talk about that stuff. Again, that interview is tomorrow. The other interview on the show today is with Mark Beach, who used to be a, a writer for Sports Illustrated, and he is now uh, with the Players' Tribune, and he has an amazing book out called The People's Team, an Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers. Now, anyone who knows me knows this show. I'm not a Packers fan. I'm also not like against the Packers in any way. Uh, but this book came to me unsolicited from the publisher, a publisher that we've got a great relationship with. Uh, she recently helped us with the uh, Dodgers book, um, if you recall that one from the summer, just as a point of reference. And uh, she reached out to me and she sent this book unsolicited and I I had it and kind of didn't give it a thought at first. And she wrote me and she said, would you talk to Mark? And I said, yeah, of course I would. Uh, first of all, I respect his work from his days at SI. And second of all, this book is beautiful. Uh, I will admit if there's a criticism I've gotten on this show, besides me being a mush mouth, which is an embarrassment, and my lack of command of the English language, which is another embarrassment, has been that I, I'm a little bit too fanboy, that when a guest comes on, I go out of my way to praise them, I guess, or whatever. I Sometimes I'm not tough enough. Now, if you listen to my Conrad Thompson interview, I was very tough with Conrad, and I think that's why I didn't get a retweet. Conrad tweets and retweets everything with his name on it, and I begged him for a retweet of the interview, and he never did it, and I know why he never did it. It's because he'd rather not have that many people know about what a scam the Bruce Pritchard Patreon is. Um, and he also doesn't want to hear, he also doesn't want people to hear him saying that he's going to add people onto Patreon for free. Um, and look at Conrad was great to me. Very nice guy. I have a lot of respect for him. Um, we just disagree on that, that one thing. And I think that's why he didn't give me a retweet. But this book is beautiful. It's incredibly well done. And I want people to know about it. And I want Packers fans to buy it. And I know we sold some copies of it today on Twitter, which I'm excited about. And we'll get to Mark after the book club. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk to John in a minute. Then we're going to take a break. Then we'll do the book club. Uh, then we will have Mark on. And then we'll do one last thing. Now, in one last thing. If you're a listener of this program, if you're someone who cares at all about me, which I'll admit is probably a small percentage of you, uh, I, I my assumption is most people tune in uh, for the interviews and don't care about me much, and that's okay. I'm not saying that in any kind of negative way, but I've been told by some people that people do care about me. They can hear these people anywhere, and the reason they listen to them here partly is because they care about me. Not sure if I believe that or not, but I have worked uh, specifically with my brother Greg over the last year or so to make one last thing more personal, to give it a, you will look into my soul, to be honest. I think I've cried a few times in that last segment over the last year. I don't edit anything out. I turn the mic on. I pour my heart out about whatever the topic is, and I, I, I publish it for you, the listener, because I appreciate anyone who takes the time to listen to this and of course a crowded podcasting market you listen to a guy who's a mushmouth who doesn't have any command of the English language and is a nobody so I thank you so if you do care about me I as a thank you 
try to be as honest as possible. And if you do care about me and you know about this podcast, you know what a big fan of the New Orleans Saints I am, how much I love Drew Brees. And I'm going to tell you the story about my trip to New Orleans a couple of weekends ago now to see the Saints game and the meeting I had with Drew Brees. Yes, I did meet Drew Brees uh, on the field of the Louisiana Superdome. And I will detail that entire story at the end. And one last thing. So we have a lot to do today. I also want to mention that the demise of Sports Illustrated has happened before our eyes in the last few weeks. And I don't want anyone to think I'm avoiding that subject. I do want to talk about it. There's a lot we actually have to get to, right? We have to talk about the start of hockey season. We haven't done anything on that yet. I'd like to talk about the demise of Sports Illustrated. There's a lot of stuff I want to do. And I'm going to try to do at least five to ten more podcasts for season nine before the year ends. I am meeting with uh, Dr. Adams on November 5th to schedule my third surgery of 2019 uh, or my first of 2020, depending on the timing. Uh, So, of course, that could affect how many more I get in. But I do have a lot I want to do, a lot of people I want to talk to, and a lot of things I want to say. And one of those is... I want to talk about the demise of SI. Now, I don't know if John Wertheim is going to be willing to come on here and talk to me about what I'm sure to him has been a devastating month. I don't know. I don't know who's going to want to do that. Jimmy Trina is probably not going to come on here and talk about that. I'll ask them. I don't know. Um, So we'll see what we do on that. But that is a topic at the top of my list that I want to book. Uh, Scott Burnside is going to join us in an upcoming show to talk about the NHL season. I want to talk to Wyshynski before Puck Daddy before this season is out. I want to talk to Jeff Passan when the World Series ends. And I want to talk to Joe Buck when the World Series ends. So there's still a lot I want to do this year. And we'll get to as much of it as I can. But with that said, uh, we have a lot to do today. So let's get started. I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to come back uh, for the second time. Uh, The author of two of the highest-selling sports books of all time, John Feinstein, will join us. So let's take a break. We'll be right back. All right, our first guest today is a graduate of Duke University. Uh, he's making a second appearance on the show today. The first time he was on, he was here to promote his book, Quarterback. He's a man who really needs not much of an introduction, so let's bring him in. A warm sportscaster's welcome to John Feinstein. How are you, Mr. Feinstein? It's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you so much. It's good to be back. And um, uh, my father's Mr. Feinstein. I'm John. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I, I just have a lot of respect for you, and I just wanted to... Uh, well, and I'm old, so I understand. <laughs> uh, I remember when I started this, people thought I was uh, the young guy, but I'm not that young, especially now. Um, young is a relative term. I suppose it is, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I, I, I've been in a lunch group um, dating back to 1998 that Red Auerbach was the centerpiece of that led to one of my books, ultimately. But the, the lunch group continues to exist, and... One of the reasons I like going is because it's about the only place in the world where I still get called kid. So <laughs> age is relative, as we know. My wife's my wife's grandfather 
was in some kind of club that was like literally designed around not dying. Like you had uh, a, you had to put in cash if you died, you know, like, and then whoever was alive last, I guess, got the money. It wasn't him. He died. But the whole right. club, they would meet like every month or two and have, you know, pints of beer and talk about who was going to go next. It was almost like a <laughs> death pool. They thought it was the greatest thing. Um, well, as long as you're alive, it's a good club to be part yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And, and he told me, like, it would be at their funerals and their wakes, like, probably the funerals more. Like, it would be part of the eulogy. They'd be like, yeah, he's disappointed he didn't win the so-and-so club, but right. good luck to the six guys still alive. We're pulling for you. <laughs> well, they're, they're all going to lose eventually, but right, right. let's move on to uh, more uh, 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 cheery subjects, I think. Let's talk about the World Series for a second, because you're near D.C., okay. right? You're in Maryland. Is that right? I'm right outside D.C., yes. Yeah, and um, this is a big week for baseball in D.C., uh, for sure. It's been a big – it's been a hell of a run, even if we trace it back to May, right? I mean, for a team that was never necessarily in first place – They've been playing some kick-ass baseball since May, and here they are in the World Series. What's the atmosphere like there, first of all? Oh, they're going crazy. Uh, I mean, you have to understand about baseball in Washington. Uh, The last time there was a World Series here was in 1933. Uh, And unless you remember that club you were talking about, (laughs) there's just not many people around who remember it. Uh, And, of course, there was no baseball at all for 33 years after the second version of the Senators left to go to Texas, uh, and there were all sorts of false starts. I remember when I first, uh, my parents first moved down here from New York when I was in college, uh, and they were all excited because the, the Joe Danzansky, uh, who owned Giant Foods, was going to buy the San Diego Padres and move them to Washington. Didn't happen. Then there was going to be an expansion team, they thought, in 1987. Didn't happen. Uh, the, the, the Tampa, um, the the excuse me the um, my Miami right uh, in Colorado uh, Colorado expansion yeah, those Washington teams. was supposed yep. to get a team Didn't Buffalo happen. was in on that so, sorry Buffalo was in on that one as well yeah, yeah. I mean a lot of cities were right. in on that and Washington was always convinced they were going to get the team because they deserved a team and in many ways of course they did it is the nation's capital right finally 2005 um, they get the Expos I still think. What happened to the Expos uh, was was brutal. Um, they need they did need a new stadium, Olympic Stadium. I I was at many times. It was very outmoded, but they had a good organization. They were leading the major leagues in '94 when the strike happened. Uh, the number of young, you know, really good young players they unloaded, especially when MLB owned the team, was disgraceful. But eventually, they moved it here to Washington. Uh, they built a very ordinary stadium uh, as opposed to Camden Yards right up by 95 in, in Baltimore, which is still one, one of the, the best, best yeah. ballparks, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, began to, to build and finally got it turned around. They got so many first draft picks, they almost could not turn it around uh, in 2012. They, they got the first pick in uh, 2009 and got Strasburg. A year later, they got the first pick and got Bryce Harper. Uh, Mike Rizzo, the general manager, who does think he invented baseball, but is a very good general manager, made some good moves, and they got good. And they've really been consistently good since 2012. They won four division titles, but never got out of the division series. And then this year, as you said, uh, they got off to a horrible start. They were 19-31 and 31 in May. Uh, even Tom Boswell, who was 
the number one chronicler of the team for the Washington Post, a great baseball writer and a you know delirious Nats fan, uh, was writing that Davey Martinez had to be fired even though he's a, such a good guy. Um, and Barry Sferluga, another of my colleagues at the Post, wrote that the season was over. Right. Uh, and now Tom and Barry, of course, are leading the cheers. But uh, they did turn it around. They got completely healthy. Uh, their, their, their pitching uh, got better uh, after the uh, uh, trade deadline. They made some trades for better relief pitchers. They weren't brilliant down the stretch, but they were good enough. And they got the wild card and got lucky, frankly, in the wild card game. They were down 3-1 in the eighth inning. Uh, scored three runs, the last of them unearned. And then, again, you know, they found a way to beat Clayton Kershaw late in game five and, and then kill the Cardinals. I thought they'd beat the Cardinals. I didn't think they'd sweep them. So here they are in the World Series, and basically the parade has already been planned. <laughs> well, they got to think, I think, the Cardinals, because not only did they eliminate the Braves, who have had the best of the Nationals for years and, and really really played them great all year. I mean, I remember a huge four-game series like in August or in September where the Braves just buried the Nats, and um, for them to get eliminated, and then for the Cardinals to be nice enough to what they have four hits for the through the first three games of the uh, of the CS was, I think, a nice touch yeah. for them. Yeah, um, you're right about the Braves and the way they. I think they were eleven and seven or twelve and six against the Nats, um, but I really believed that the Nats had a kind of unique momentum having beaten the Dodgers, having finally gotten over that division series hump, which, you know, teams always say, well, the past doesn't matter. Of course the past matters. Everybody knows what ha- what's happened in the past. Right. Uh, they got over that hump, beating Kershaw, you know, back-to-back home runs against them in the eighth. And I really think the Cardinals just had nothing left in the tank after that Brave series because that was a rock-and-roll back-and-forth series, and they did win the last game 13-1, to but um, and the Nats pitching was coming together at just the right time. Scherzer finally got healthy after you know being injured and not pitching that well. Strasburg's been very good. Uh, they got a great start in game one from Annabelle Sanchez, uh, and that's why they have a chance to win this series. I mean, the Astros are won 107 games. It was no fluke, but uh, the Nationals certainly have a chance with their starting pitching to win this series. Is there any truth to the rumor that the Nats are considering shutting down Strasburg for the World Series to preserve him <laughs> for the future? Yeah, uh, they're going to save him for spring training next year. Um, I'm probably the one guy in the Washington media who thought that was a mistake uh, when they shut Strasburg down in 2012. Yeah. I wrote a column in June of that year when they were in first place and had first become good, saying, look, if you want to limit his innings, that's fine. But stretch it out so that if you're playing in October, you still have your best pitcher available. Right. You know, uh, pitch him on seven days rest. Throw him three or four innings in a start. Uh, give them uh, 10, 12 days off around the All-Star break, stuff like that, so that when you get to October, he's not at the 160-inning limit. And um, Mike Rizzo, of course, basically under orders from Scott Boris, who is Strasburg's agent, um, who I call the cowardly lion because he's, he's really great at delivering statements and stuff like that but never wants to answer real questions. Um, but uh, they shut him down in August. He didn't pitch in postseason. Uh, they lost to the Cardinals in five. They could have won the series at a six-game, six-run lead in game five. But if Strasburg had pitched game three, uh, I believe they would have won the series in four games. But, of course, most of my colleagues in the media here and all the you know, wild-eyed Nats fans think that it was the most brilliant move in the history of baseball. I completely 180 degrees disagree. I totally agree with you, and I've killed them ever since for it. You know, it's interesting because a couple of springs ago, 
the choking dogs that were the Washington Capitals, it was their year and just kind of everything broke. They, right. You know, they shook the Penguins in round two, the the one team they could never beat. And then they kind of steamrolled their way on through. I was the one guy saying, you know, they beat. It really felt like when they beat the Penguins that they had won their cup. And I was worried about them against Tampa, thinking that, you know. Well, Tampa was up 3-2 in that series. Yeah, and I thought. Remember. But, but then, yeah, they battled. And rally to win in seven and then beat Vegas pretty easily in five games. Um, my, my but, point was yeah, to bring I mean, it up. You know, it, you, sometimes it's just your time. Right, and that was my uh, point. I mean, the, the Cubs had to wait uh, 108 years. The Red Sox had to wait 86 years. The Red Sox were down 3-0. Uh, to the Yankees in that famous ALCS in 2004, came back, won, swept the World Series, and now they've won four World Series in 15, or now 16 years. Uh, so sometimes it's your time, and you know, this may be the next time. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Right. It feels like it could be. Uh, if we were to talk in 10 days and the Nats had won this, what do you think the, what do you think the big headlines would be? You mean in terms of the the games and just in general, I, I like why did the, they win it? Well, I think that it would be their starting pitching. Okay, I, I, that's still the the the, the sole core of the team. Uh, those four starters who have all had success. You know, and it's not like they're flukes. Um, uh, Max Scherzer is a Hall of Famer. Uh, mm-hmm. Strasburg's a very become a very solid pitcher in the middle of his career. Annabelle Sanchez won an ERA title once upon a time, and, and Patrick Corbin's been a very solid pitcher. He was terrible in relief in the Dodgers series, but he's been very good as a starter uh, throughout his career. So I think it would be that the Nats starters outpitch the Astros starters because the Astros, of course, will start with Cole and Verlander on full rest, unlike when they pitch Verlander on short rest uh, in, in the division series. Um, but I, I, think, I think the key... The key to the series for the Astros might be Zach Greinke because he's been terrible he has, in yeah. postseason. Mm-hmm. And they, they need a, a good start from him in game three and, and potential, potentially in a game seven if it goes seven because he'd probably pitch game seven. Uh, so I, I think that if the Nats win, you know, somebody's going to hit a key home run. This is the year of the home run. Um, if you ask me to bet on who it would be, I'd say Anthony Rendon or Juan Soto. Um, but to, the, if they win, it's going to be because the starting pitching comes through the way it did in the St. Louis series. For that key home run, I'm going to throw out Zimmerman just because it just... Yeah, I mean, Zimmerman yeah. would be the, the, the poetic story. Right? That story. Would be I the, mean, he's been yeah. with the franchise since the very beginning. He's a good guy, um, and uh, the, this could be his last year with the Nets because his contract's up, and, and whether they re-sign him or not, we'll, we'll see. I mean, their first priority in the offseason obviously has to be Rendon. It's interesting in 2019, you know, baseball in 2019, we just saw it in game six, the ALCS with the openers and the way managers use bullpens now and the focus on analytics. It's kind of cool to me as someone who's always loved pitching uh, that we have a classic kind of starters versus starters here, at least to start the series, right? You, what's the key? What did we just talk about? Granke, yeah, Verlander, yeah. Cole. Now, yeah. now, having said that, as strong as the starters are, if you if you said to me, okay, the Astros have won in ten game in ten days from now, I, I might say that the the key headline here in Washington would be that the bullpen didn't get the job done because even though the bullpen was has been good in postseason uh, and was better the second half of the season after the trades, uh, Rizzo's made some bad midseason trades uh, through the years, notably Jonathan Papelbon, 
but he got he got it right this summer. Um, but that that could still be the, the the Achilles heel for the Nats before all is said and done if they were to lose. But I'm like you. I mean, I love seeing. I love you know. I'm old enough. I remember the days when guys just routinely pitch complete games right. and routinely pitch 300 innings in a year. And I can remember World Series when I was a kid. You know where. Bob Gibson and Jim Lomborg and Sandy Koufax and, and Jim Cott pitched on two days rest because it was the World Series and, and, and you wanted your best guys out there. Koufax pitched a four-hit shutout in uh, Game 7 of the 65 World Series on two days rest. So, um, and nowadays, of course, it's considered a big risk to pitch somebody at any time on three days rest. Um, and uh, A.J. Hinch got ripped for pitching Verlander on three days rest because it didn't work. Uh, and a pitcher goes seven innings, that's deep into a game. I, I saw, when I was doing my book, and this is 12 years ago, before the whole thing with getting relievers in in the fifth and sixth innings and going with, you know, starting the game with bullpens came into vogue. But uh, back in 2007, I was doing a book on Tom Glavin and Mike Messina, both of whom are in the Hall of Fame. Great book. And I love that I, book. And thank you. Yeah. And, and I, I, was, uh, I was trying to figure out, uh, why Burt Blylevin and, and Jim Cott and Tommy John weren't in the Hall of Fame. Uh, all three won 280 games plus. Um, and, of course, uh, Bly, Blylevin has since gone in. But when I looked up Blylevin's stats, it mentioned that he'd thrown 60 shutouts. Tom Glavin, who's deservedly in the Hall of Fame, threw 56 complete games. And to me, that illustrates the way that the sport has changed and the way pitching has changed. That, you know, in, in the old days, it, it was routine for guys to throw 15, 20, you know, good pitchers, 15, right. 20 complete games in a year. Now, the, the league leader usually has three. <laughs> Amazing. I was 10 years old for the, during the 91 World Series, and I watched in awe of Morris. I mean, Morris pitched 10 innings, right? And Smoltz pitched nine. Or maybe the yeah. opposite. Uh, no, no, it, yeah, you're right. You yeah. have it right. Uh, uh, Morris pitched ten and Smoltz pitched nine in Game Seven. I mean, that's and they, I believe they were both on three days rest. Amazing in um, that game, and it, it was routine at that point in time for great pitchers to do that. And call me old fashioned, but I miss it. I, I just don't. The juices don't flow for me as much for a Game Six when it's opener versus opener. I, I don't know. Yeah, it just doesn't. Yeah, no, it's, it's not. It's definitely not the same. Um, but it, it's. It's become an effective tool. I think Kevin Cash was the first one who started really doing it a couple of years ago, and because he he had success with it, others, you know, people always copy success in sports. You, know, you talk about the Nats bullpen, and one more thing about this, you know, during July, June, July, my thought was the winner of the AL East or NL East, excuse me, is going to be the team that can figure out their bullpen because Nats, Mets, Braves, Phillies, all of them had just horrible bullpens, and. The Nats and the Braves went for it. I mean, the Braves picked up three relievers at the trade deadline. So uh, the Nats. Yeah, and so did the Nats. And it just seems like the Nats kind of won that battle. They got the right three as opposed to the Braves. The Braves, the, the Braves bullpen failed them in game four. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, they blew, You know, they were four outs away from winning that series against St. Louis. The bullpen couldn't hold the lead. They, it failed them. And you mentioned how important the Nats bullpen will be. Um, as maybe you know, potentially the story if they lose will be that the bullpen didn't hold up. So we'll see. It's an interesting uh, part of that. Or if they win, it'll or be that uh, you know the bullpen did hold up, and Rizzo will be sure to pat himself on the back until his arm breaks. <laughs> the guy who invented va- baseball, if we ask him, right? Yes. Um, do you have a prediction? 
No, not really. No. I mean, I'm I'm not big on making predictions. Do you I have never a feeling? Have like, do you feel um, it either way? Do you feeling, have f- yeah, I sort of. I've been, but it might be just because I'm sitting here in Washington, right. surrounded by all the hype. Fair. Um, but th- my feeling might be, is that this might be the Nats' time. Uh, I think overall, for a regular season, uh, the Astros are a better team. But regular season and postseason are very different. I rem- again, going back to when I did the Messina Glavin book. I, I asked Messina why the Yankees were in postseason every year, but had not won a World Series since 1999. At that point, now they have they did win one in 2009. But think about it: since 1999, they've won one World Series. Who would have thought right. the Yankees? But he said, you know, we have a team since 2007 that is built to be very strong in the regular season. We've got a lot of guys who can hit. We're deep on the bench, and and we beat up the back end of of uh of pitching staff particularly with weaker teams but generally speaking we get that fourth fifth starter we beat them up in postseason baseball you don't get the fourth fifth starter uh and and you do get guys you know the bullpen being used earlier and more often because there's only a certain number there are only a handful of games left and i i think that while if you ask me who will win more games next season the astros or the nats and obviously the astros won 14 more this season Obviously, you say the Astros, but in a best-of-seven series, I, I, it's a complete toss-up to me. Yeah, I mean, as to Mucino's point, I remember in 2004, when the Red Sox got those last two games in Fenway, I knew they were going to win that because the Yankees just didn't have anyone left to pitch. Actually, the last two games were in Yankee Stadium. Right, no, the last two games, like, to make it 3-2 in Fenway. You know, and then go oh, back, right, 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 when they got those two wins, and then they were going back to New York, Yankees didn't have anyone Yeah, you felt like they were going to win the series. Yeah, it felt like Boston Yeah, you had really it. did. Yeah. Because of the way they won games games uh, four and five. Right, that, that Tony Clark ground rule double really is an underrated play from that. I want to ask you mm-hmm. one last thing about baseball, because you wrote the book, so to speak, on minor league baseball, and there was a report last week on a potential restructuring of minor right. league baseball and kind of cutting it out. I was just curious what your opinion was, if you had read the article and kind of what your thought yes, was. Yes, I did read it. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, I, this is Major League Baseball's way of trying to pretend that they're going to re- they are responding to complaints from minor leaguers that they're not paid enough, which they're not. Uh, there's a lawsuit going on. Uh, right now, involving pay for minor leaguers, uh, and and you you know the the the, the huge gap yeah, between yep. uh, what you get paid at the AAA level, the highest level of minor league ball, and the major league level. Uh, and so what they what they want to do is they want to get rid of a whole bunch of teams, particularly in the lower minor leagues, um, which will save them a lot of money. It'll probably cost about a thousand jobs. Uh, to baseball players, young and old, who want to want to continue to play and are willing to play for less than a lot of money, uh, it will take away baseball from a lot of smaller towns uh, where you know they, they they love having their minor league team, whether it's in a Class A team or a Penn League team or a rookie league team, whatever it is. Um, and I think it's a terrible, terrible idea. And the minor leagues are fighting it. Uh, but usually the people with power and money went out in these situations, and it's MLB that has the power and the money. I wonder if it leaking out before it was implemented gives them a, a chance, you know, like a fighter's chance to. It might, hold and it I off. think it, uh, my guess is the story was leaked by minor league baseball right. um, that they wanted it out there so that there'd be some kind of public outcry or media outcry or both, uh, and because it, it won't happen before 2021, so maybe there is some time to, uh, at the very least, 
you know, do some bargaining and, and, and not lose quite as many teams and quite as many jobs. The sportscasters are here with the great John Feinstein, who with peace and love has retired from Twitter debates. So do not debate him on Twitter because most of you are idiots. Um, <laughs> a, a couple quick things and I'll let you go. Uh, college football season. I know you're a big college sports guy, football, basketball. You've written great books about both of the subjects. Uh, again, I won't ask you to make a prediction, but you got you got to feel it all for how this season's going. Do you like the idea of the Tua versus Hertz national championship uh, story that could be brewing? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I I don't get that fired up about the college football playoff. To me, you know, I, I mean, it's Alabama, Clemson, it's LSU, it's Ohio State, it's it's all schools that spend millions and millions of dollars on their programs. Uh, I get a lot more fired up, uh, as I think you know, about Army-Navy right. uh, mm-hmm. or Navy-Air Force or Harvard-Yale. Um, that's sort of become the, the places I like to go to write uh, in, in my dotage. Um, but uh, I certainly have – I respect what Nick Saban has done as a coach. I don't find him that admirable as a human being. Um, I re- admire what Davo Sweeney's done as a coach and I do admire him as a human being. So, um, but there's no, there's no team that I'm looking at right now, uh, that among the undefeated group, uh, which is the top six plus Baylor, uh, Baylor down at 14, uh, where I'm saying, Oh boy, I hope those guys end up winning. Oh boy. I think this, this school is, is, is the best story. Uh, my column, my Washington post column this week's on Iowa state and how they've come from being consistent losers to, to uh, winning eight games the last two years and being two plays away this year from being 7-0. and That, to me, is an intriguing story. Um, and Matt Campbell, their coach, is obviously one of the really up-and-coming young coaches in the profession. He's not yet 40. Um, but I, I don't have a gut feeling about uh, who's, who's going to win or even who's going to be in the playoff. Because, you know, uh, in, in the Big Ten, for example, Ohio State's undefeated. It still has to play Wisconsin, which got taken down a notch, obviously, last week. Right. Penn Illinois. State and Michigan, and then maybe play Wisconsin again, or Minnesota, uh, in the Big Ten championship game. So there are going to be losses among those undefeated teams. LSU and Alabama are going to play each other in a couple of weeks. The one team I look at and I say they should run the table is Clemson, because the ACC, back in the 90s, when the ACC had nine schools, I used to say in football it was Florida, Florida State, the Seven Dwarfs, and Duke, which aspired to be a dwarf. <laughs> now, it, 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 with the fall of Florida State, to me it's Clemson and, and the 13 midgets um, because every, you know, they're all basically six and six teams in that league other than, I mean, some of them have better records than that. I mean, Wake Forest will win eight or nine games, I think, um, and good for them, by the way. Uh, but is there anybody you see on, in the ACC who's going to seriously – um, challenge Clemson. Now they do have one non-conference game left against Wofford. Oh, yeah. So Ooh. that could be dangerous. That could be tough. Yeah. The, it's interesting you mentioned Iowa State because they scare me as someone who enjoys Oklahoma football. I'm not like a huge fan, but I do enjoy Oklahoma football and follow it. They beat the Baker Mayfield Sooners two years they ago. Did. Uh, and they did. That was a turning point in their program. Yeah, and that's going to be a tough game for OU. Um, you know, well, a lot it is of, at Oklahoma. Although when they that's beat where it was when they lost. Ago, it was yep. at Oklahoma too. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that so, that game scares uh, me because a lot of people are like, "Oh, they got through Texas and the Big 12's down." You know, maybe Baylor's tough, but that they should really slide through. And I'm like, "Man, Iowa State, that's tough. They've already beat us in Oklahoma." Iowa State could could be a tough out. Yeah. Um, 
they they're an experienced team. They've got a, a very good coach, and and they believe that they should be seven and zero. And they would sort of like to prove to people uh, that the two losses were gained. You know, they lost to Iowa eighteen seventeen on a late field goal. They lost. They they were down twenty to nothing at Baylor. Came back and took the lead twenty one twenty, and then lost on a, a field goal with twenty one seconds left. So it's it's not a stretch to say they could be seven and zero. A uh, quick thing, and then I'll probably get you out of here on that. Uh, last time you were on, you were promoting quarterback, which I loved. And we had a great interview about it, I thought. And I was really interested to hear uh, what your thoughts were. I'm interested to hear just your thoughts about quarterbacks in the NFL in 2019. It's really an interesting year with, like, Luck retiring, Bris- uh, Jacoby Brissett stepping in. You could almost say the story of the NFL season is the backup quarterbacks that have come in. Yeah. And being You're the fantastic. backup, and now Matt yeah. Ryan may be down. Of course, their season's over anyway in Atlanta. Um, but uh, it, it, Matt Luck announced his retirement three days before the uh, the paperback of quarterback came out. Um, and I sent him a note thanking him. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, right? Yeah. <laughs> I said, thanks for, for giving people a reason to call me and want me uh, on their shows just when the paperback's coming out, because as you know, Andrew was one of the main characters in the book. Yeah. Um, and, and that sort of seemed to start things off. He retires, like you said, uh, and then Drew Brees goes down the first week of the season. Second. Yeah. goes out uh, for the year. Um, it just seems like every time you turn around, it's not like we're just talking starting quarterbacks. Stars, going we're talking right. star yeah. quarterbacks Hall going down. Yeah. yeah, and in many cases, and and I, I, I actually did one of my CBS minutes and mentioned that you know that these guys were big stars. I said, I said we're not talking Mitchell Trubisky here, and of course people in Chicago, oh, you know, you're putting Mitchell Trubisky down. And I, I thought to myself, uh, since I'm no longer responding on Twitter. Um, I thought to myself, so how would would you like to be a Bears fan and sit there watching Mitchell Trubisky, knowing that they traded up to draft him and didn't draft Patrick Mahomes or Watson um, or Deshaun Watson? Right. Uh, and uh, we could get into a whole another <laughs> conversation about old white general managers in the NFL uh, who are always biased towards white quarterbacks. And it's worth noting that Lamar Jackson who may be the next star, would not have been a first-round draft pick if not for the fact that Ozzie Newsom, who's African-American, traded into the first round to take him with the last pick two years ago. Okay, that's interesting because this is something I guess we disagreed on a little bit uh, when we did talk the first time. And I admitted it could just be naivety on my part. Um, if the Bears didn't draft, or didn't draft Watson or... Uh, Mahomes because Mahomes. of race. I mean, they got what they they got what they deserve. See, I'm not saying. I, I, don't misunderstand me. Okay. I'm not saying that anybody sits in a room and says we're not going to take the black quarterback. I obviously, you know, you couldn't hold a job if you if you were thinking that way. Uh, what I am saying is there is this unseen, un, unspoken bias. You know, like when 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 all the TV talking heads and general managers are saying, "Well, Lamar Jackson would be a great running back, or maybe he should be a wide receiver." Why? Because he can run. Steve Young could run too. Nobody ever suggested that he become a wide receiver. Uh, and you know, Warren Moon. And this goes back years and years. It's a bias that dates to the '60s when quarterbacks were con- black quarterbacks were not considered smart enough to play the position. Warren Moon, who became a Hall of Famer, had to play in Canada for six years. Because nobody thought he, he, he could play in the NFL coming out of the University of Washington. And we see too many examples of this for it to just be, oh, yeah, well, they made a mistake. 
Uh, Russell Wilson didn't go till the third round. Dak Prescott didn't go till the fourth round. Now you can come back at me and say, "Well, Tom Brady didn't go till the sixth round." Tom right. Brady wasn't a full-time starter coming out of Michigan uh, until midway through his senior year. And a lot look, oh, clearly a lot of scouts missed on him, but and, and scouts miss do miss on white quarterbacks. There's there's no doubt about it. It's just that it happens too many times for me not to believe there isn't some kind of. Um, unconscious bias that a lot of guys have when they see an African-American quarterback, especially if he has running skills. I would never argue with you about Warren Moon. You know, those, I think, definitely then. Uh, but you say, like, nobody suggested, uh, who is your example? Uh, Steve Young. Steve Young. But they did suggest Julian Edelman do it, Right. Well, they did, and and we don't. We'll never know what kind of quarterback Julian Edelman would have been. We right. know he's become a great wide receiver. I mean, there are guys who who change positions when they get to the NFL. Gary Beban, who won the Heisman Trophy in 1967, was moved to running back when he came into the NFL. When they did try to play him at quarterback later, he was he wasn't an NFL quarterback. I mean, scouts do know something about what they're doing. They're not all complete idiots. I'm just saying. I mean, I listen to Bill Polian talking about Lamar Jackson. And I know Bill Polian. I respect Bill Polian. He's in the Hall of Fame. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. But I'm sitting there saying to myself, as he's talking about, well, you know, he should probably be a wide receiver and blah, blah, blah. I'm sitting there saying, if he had the exact same skill set and he was white, this would not even be in the conversation. Well, didn't people say about And I'm not saying Bill Polian is racist by any stretch. What about Tebow? Because a lot of people were suggesting... Tebow just wasn't good enough. But people were suggesting that he should be a tight end in the NFL, and he was well, a superstar he, he, he might college. have been a decent tight end. Well, again, yeah. we'll never know. Um, the, the Jets tried to use him at position, posi- positions other than quarterback, but Tebow just didn't have the, the arm to be a successful NFL quarterback. Now, they had a decent season in Denver the year that he started most of the games, but that was because of the defense. That right. was because of a couple miracle plays. You know, and the minute they had the chance to sign Peyton Manning, they who did. wouldn't sign yep. Peyton Manning, mm-hmm. uh, they signed him. And, and he was never – it's not like teams wouldn't want Tim Tebow to be the star of their team. I mean, he's, he's the All-American boy. Everybody loves Tim Tebow. He didn't succeed because he wasn't good enough. And what I'm saying is that, that, that for scouts to, to sit there and uh, – look, I'm not a professional scout. But I looked at Mitchell Trubisky, I looked at Patrick Mahomes, I looked at Deshaun Watson, and I said, are you blanking kidding me when the Bears took Trubisky? I was shocked. I didn't know anything about Trubisky, except for that he was well, like I a did, combine. Well, I played in North Carolina, yeah, I didn't. and I live in the ACC area, and so I was, and he was, he had, he was much like um, uh, Hopkins here in uh, Washington now. He was only a starter for one year. Right. And, yep. and you can see where Hopkins is, has, has, you know, they're bringing him along incredibly slowly because he's so inexperienced. Not because he's black, just because he's so inexperienced. But he did have one year at Ohio State, which contended for the national championship as opposed to North Carolina, which is, you know, one of those 13 ACC dwarfs. Let me ask you this real quick about Lamar Jackson. I think it was Clay Travis who can be con- polarizing, but he put out a video that I watched. It was a minute long, so I stuck with it. And I'm just curious what your opinion of this. His point was, he's awesome, but I've seen this before with the running quarterback that it's just you can't make a living in the NFL, that eventually the NFL defense is going to break you. 
We've seen it. With- yeah, I wonder if Clay Travis has actually watched Lamar Jackson play because what Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson rarely takes a hard hit. Right. Um, he he rarely gets sacked because of his elusiveness, and when he runs, he has a way of. He got hit. Well, I watched the entire Seattle game. Uh-huh. Yes, yesterday, uh, Sunday, excuse me. Sure. Uh, he got hit hard once. Now, you can get hurt in the NFL at any time. I mean, the worst injuries are usually non-contact injuries. Right. Drew Brees' um, injury, I mean, he just glanced his thumb off Aaron Donald's hand, just, right? Yeah, yeah his, his hand just, mm-hmm. uh, his thumb just hit a helmet. Right. Um, but, uh, so, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, no, Lamar Jackson will never get injured. Uh, what I'm telling you is that Lamar Jackson has a, a knack for avoiding Hard hits, and I'll also tell you because uh, I'll bet you a dollar Clay Travis brought up Robert Griffin. Robert Griffin's career didn't fade, and he's backing up Lamar Jackson now. Interestingly, um, because he was a running quarterback, it faded because he and the team did a terrible job of making sure he was a hundred percent before he came back after his knee injury, and his knee injury became as serious as it became because the dumb. I won't use the next word, but because of the the, the team doctor and the team and the coach allowed him to go back onto a terrible field after he was initially injured, allowed him to keep playing. So that that had nothing to do with his style of play. You know, it's interesting. I had Malcolm Kelly on this show because I'm a huge fan of his rap. Did you ever see his freestyle rap after the Nebraska Big 12 championship. I, I, uh, the next time I watch rap uh, on purpose will be the first. I'm the same way. but this, I, I this know was I'm awesome. dating myself. I'm the same way. I'm not a rap guy, but this not is my awesome. Stuff, not my thing. Anyway, not important. I had Malcolm, Malcolm Kelly on the show, who also had a devastating knee injury on that field that Robert Griffin did. Uh, and I asked That's Malcolm, a terrible field. I yeah. was amazed nobody got seriously hurt on Sunday playing in the rain. I asked Malcolm Kelly. I thought he was going to go trainers. You know, I asked him. Was it, you know, what happened in Washington with you and RG3? It's about the same time. You guys both had these bad knee injuries. They obviously set RG3 out too soon. And he was like, yeah, probably. But I'll tell you what, it's the worst field I've ever played on in my life as a football player. He really went Yeah, I don't understand why the NFL and the NFLPA have not come in and ordered Dan Snyder to put in a new field. I do not understand it. Crazy. Uh, John Feinstein is a stud and, uh, his books are awesome. I've read several of them and he's nice enough to not only do this once, uh, but twice. And, uh, I can't thank him enough for it. Hopefully there's a third time. Uh, the quarterback is on paperback now, uh, and a great Christmas present as are many of his books. Uh, and you always have a book I don't know about, like maybe one named towards teens or something like that. Is it, what what books do you want to plug? What, what books should we sell here? Well, I I do have a book that's just out that's aimed uh, toward younger readers, right. um, you know, ten, eleven, and up. It's called Benchwarmers. Uh, it's just out, and and it's about a uh, an eleven year old girl, a sixth grader, uh, who wants to play on the boys' soccer team, and there's um, the misogynist soccer coach doesn't want her on the team, even though she's one of the best players. Uh, and the story sort of revolves around that. So it's just out and a wonderful Christmas present if you have a young reader in your home. And I read you have a new modestly. You have a new college basketball book coming out soon, right? Did I read coming that? out in March? Yeah. Yes, I spent last season um, just hanging out with players and coaches and teams from schools that aren't on TV all the time. That you probably uh, have either never heard of most of these guys, or you may have heard of them. A little bit, you, you know, you will have heard of the UMBC because of their win over Virginia. You will have heard of Loyola of Chicago because of their trip to the Final Four two years ago. Um, but for the most part, probably guys you haven't heard much about, but who I think had great stories to tell 
And the book's called The Back Roads to March. It'll come out cleverly enough in early March, and it was just great fun for me to do. Awesome. I can't wait. I'm going to get that. I'm going to read it, and you're going to come on, and we'll talk about it. Sounds good. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the World Series. Yep. Cheers. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high All right, I want to thank John Feinstein for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate that. All right, we got a lot to do in the book club today because the book club has got crazy. Now, first thing I want to say is I told everyone the crazy story of this Bob Stoops book, No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach. Uh, it's by Bob Stoops and Gene Wojciechowski, who's appeared on this show before and had a book in the book club. I can't remember what the last exact update was I gave you, but I do want to say that No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach did actually arrive uh, in North Tonawanda in my mailbox. Uh, so thanks to them for sending it. It's by far the weirdest experience I've ever had trying to obtain a book. I hope to never have to deal with that publisher again, to be honest. Uh, But thanks to them for actually sending one. And, um, you know, so if you're interested in Bob Stoops, check that out. That's as far as we're going to go with that book. All right. Two new books are going to be the focus of the book club over the next few weeks. And the first one's important to me uh, because it's by a guy named Rob Mish. He always tells me it rhymes with wish. It's spelled weird, M-I-E-C-H, but it's Rob Mish. And he is a friend of mine. Uh, There's a few people uh, who, through the course of the years uh, doing this show, I would be confident to say are friends of mine. And Rob has been a friend to me. Internet friends, admittedly. We don't meet up in Vegas for dinner. We live in different cities. We live in different sides of the world, or the country, I should say. Uh, But Rob is a friend, and um, I love his books. He wrote an amazing one called The Last Natural about Bryce Harper. He wrote one about Ed O'Bannon that we covered as a book club book of the month. Uh, And his newest book is called Sports Betting for Winners, Tips and Tales from the New World of Sports Betting. It's on sale October 29th, uh, 2019. And Rob was nice enough. uh, First of all, the publisher sent me a copy. And on top of that, Rob sent me two copies, Uh, one for myself. It says, Steve, thank you for your interest and support. Uh, And it has his autograph and the date, 2019. It was also nice enough to send one for my brother. He wrote, Anthony, hope you enjoy. No hell, hope this helps. You make a few bucks. Uh, Again, his name, 2019. So just really thankful to Rob for sending the books and to the publishers for sending a book. And of course, I'm going to read it, and as soon as I'm done reading it, Rob will join us to talk about it. Um, I can't wait to dig into it. I hope the listeners will give it a chance uh, and buy a copy for Rob and uh, make this book a success. Again, it's called Sports Betting for Winners, Tips and Tales from the New World of Sports Betting, Uh, kind of almost like a follow-up to the um, Albert 
Chen book that we discussed uh, a few podcasts ago, uh, which was about DraftKings um, and what's the other one called? DraftKings and I only play DraftKings. I can't, FanDuel. All right. The other book, this is really exciting. You might recall a few seasons ago, uh, we did a book by a guy named David DeSola, and it was called The Untold Story of Alice in Chains, and I loved it. Loved the book. Didn't love the interview as, as much as the book, but I loved the book, and it was really fun to cover. And I love with the book club to do things besides sports. Of course, we've done a ton of different things. We did Artie Lang's book and had Artie on, one of my favorite interviews in the history of the show. Uh, we've done TV books. Alan Sepinwall has been on to promote his TV books. Jim Florentine's book. Uh, so we love to do things with books, uh, whether it be music or comedy or sports or whatever. And we have a new music book to announce as a member of the book club book of the month. And I'm pumped about it. It is called Dark Black and Blue. And it is a book about the mighty Soundgarden. Again, it's called Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story. Of course, Soundgarden, recently named as a nominee for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And man, are my fingers crossed that they get inducted. They absolutely deserve it. And it would be awesome because if they are inducted, Matt Cameron, uh, who's already been inducted with Pearl Jam, will be a two-time inductee, which would be amazing for Matt. Uh, But Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story is a book by a guy named Greg Prado. Uh, and hopefully that is the correct pronunciation of his name, Prado, Prado. We'll get it from him. Uh, but he's a famous author. He's written a ton of books. And he usually writes them in this oral history type style. This is not that. I'm seven chapters in, and it's a straight narrative about Soundgarden. I'm really excited about that. Greg and I have been in co- conversation on Twitter, and he's excited for us to promote it. Uh, he didn't have any copies of it to send me because... I guess it's one of these books that they print it as they're ordered. But I said, look, it, I'll buy it as a ebook. I'll buy it myself. I want to read it regardless. So I'll buy it as an ebook if you will come on and do the interview. And he said, no, don't buy the ebook. And he sent me a PDF file of it, which is awesome. So I'm reading it now. And Greg will join us to talk about this book. We'll talk about Soundgarden. And we will absolutely. Uh, he has some sports books as well. I think he's from the New York area. And I think he has an, a book about the Islanders and a book about the Jets. We'll get into all that with him. I, I'd love to spend like an hour with him if we can. I don't know his schedule, but I'd love to, first of all, spend probably 45 minutes digging into the world of Soundgarden and the Seattle music scene. He wrote a book called Grunge is Dead, which kind of details the entire scene. And I read that book years ago. And I'm really excited uh, to have Greg on. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I love doing stuff like this, stepping outside the world of sports a little bit, outside of my comfort zone uh, for that. So it's a ton of information, um, and we're going to now, in a second after the break, we're going to talk about the People's Team, an illustrated history of the Green Bay Packers by Mark Beach. Uh, I did record this interview, and it's great. Uh, Mark is really candid about the book and why he did it and why he chose to make it a coffee book type. Uh, style and stories about the Packers who are like a hundred year old team just amazing Uh, and it turned out great it's about 40 minutes I think so we took a lot of time and patience uh, and I appreciate that from Mark so let's get into that I know that was a mouthful usually these are one two minutes that was probably four or five 
uh, maybe more, but I wanted to take that time. So we're going to take a break. We'll come back with Mark Beach. And then on the other side of that Mark Beach interview, we'll do plugs and, of course, one last thing. All right. We shall take a break. We'll be right back with Mark Beach. Our next guest today is making a debut on the Sportscasters. He went to West Point, worked for several years at Sports Illustrated, and today works at the Players' Tribune. He's joining us to talk about his book, The People's Team, an Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers. A warm Sportscasters welcome for the first time to Mark Beach. What's up, Mark? How are you doing today? I'm great. How, and how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm in awe of this book, Mark. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. I am jealous of every... Uh, Green Bay Packers fan that walks the earth. Not only do they have the officials working overtime for them on Monday Night Football last night, but now they have this beautiful uh, oral history or um, illustrated history, excuse me, of the team. Uh, congratulations! It's just a beautiful piece of art. Uh, thank, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's, you know, it was um, a pleasure to work on it. You know, and, and to put out it's it's really a book that I think you know if people get it in their hands, it's uh, you know it. it Really, is the the whole appeal is in the in the handling, the handling and touching and stuff. I've had you know tons of writers from Sports Illustrated on uh, the podcast over the years, and one thing a lot of different writers have told me is that they would always be reminded um, by editors or you know people in management that don't forget the illustrated part in Sports Illustrated. Um, and how important the photos are were to the magazine. We can talk about. I do want to ask you a couple questions about it later, but let's focus on the book for now. My question is the word "illustrated" in your title, and uh, the people who hold the book will right away notice how important um, pictures are, and uh, color, and black and white, and, and uh, the quality of the paper. Just what about the illustrated part of this, and how important? Um, was that to you? And did you take any um, anything from your years at Sports Illustrated and kind of the importance of that word in terms of presenting sports and book? Well, it was, um, you know, the, the, the illustrated part of the book was actually uh, my publisher, Mifflin Harcourt's idea. Um, I had pitched a book on the history of the Packers, and, and they said, why not make it a, a um, illustrated version? You know, why not, why not have some great pictures in there? And I I thought that was awesome because I didn't want just a few pictures in the middle of the morning. I thought about it. It really, you know, getting an accurate history of the Packers, you know, is, in, is as much about seeing as, as it is about um, knowing in your mind what happened and and putting the faces to the names in, in a lot of cases. And, and so um, I worked with a photo editor that I worked with for years at Sports Illustrated, Maureen Cavanaugh, who is now with me at the Players' Tribune. Um, and she's just, you know, an amazing photographer and also an amazing photo editor. And, and she found all these great historical images that were just beautiful. You know, it's, it's tough to, to find those things sometimes. I mean, that most people's conception of Packers history is, is a muddy, bloody rain itchy, you know, and calling out defensive circles of the line. It's, it's a, the, the Packers of the sixties, because that was, you know, the beginning of sports photography and television really. Um, and then it's, become less so about, you know, Curly Lambeau and his team, you know, posing for a team picture up against a, a hedge. Um, you know, because that, that's what existed in Curly's day. But, you know, the, the history of those Packers is no less glorious than, than the history of Lombardi's Packers. And, 
and I wanted to tell that story. So, so the pictures really were an important part of the whole thing. The book itself is is oversized compared to um, other books. It kind of reminds yeah. me more of like a coffee table presentation than necessarily a bookshelf uh, presentation. Right. Was that a consideration at all? Was there any reason you went in that direction specifically? Yeah, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt again. They they thought you know since it was going to be an illustrated history, they wanted um, you know it to be a hybrid. They wanted because I asked them, I was like, if you want picture pictures in the book, do you want me to write less? And they were like, no, no, do the same. Um, which was fine because that's what I planned to do. Um, but it, you know, it was sort of a hybrid. It's it's not a book you're going to take with you to read on the plane or the train. Um, but but it is a book that certainly you can read, and and the story is all there. And so, um, you know, I think you know it's a, it's a beautiful gift book. That again, I think I really you know I was in Wisconsin last week um, at some signing events in Green Bay and in the Milwaukee area and in Milwaukee itself, and and the book really does benefit from. From you, like I said, you know, being held in the hand. It's, it's a, you know, yeah, I understand Amazon.com is the way of the world now, and and I I hope it sells a lot of books there. But but really, you know, if you get out to a bookstore and you hold this thing in your hand, it's you know, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a selling point. Yeah, and I think one thing that I wanted to mention while we were doing this is just that sometimes if you if you just look at a book, you know, if you judge a book by its cover, so to speak, a book like this, you might think. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of really great pictures, but I want to really read and learn about the Packers. Don't confuse yourself. There is a ton of information and words and learning to be done about the Packers in here. <laughs> this is not just a picture book. It's a great, I think you used the word hybrid, which I love. I think it's a great hybrid and a mix between the two, but can't be lost in the pictures is the fact that there's some great, uh, you know, journalism done here and research and, um, uh, work put into describing the hundred years of the Packers. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm from Milwaukee. I, I mean, when I was about fifteen, my, I was an Army brat. And my my dad, you know, family moved to Milwaukee. Uh, my dad got a new job, um, and uh, you know, I my family was there for for twenty years or so, and, and I always went back there, and I still have friends there. Um, you know, so so the, the Packers, I, I was a fan first, and and then I became a, a journalist at Sports Illustrated, and you have to put down that veneer of you know, that, that curtain, that impartial curtain. And, and I wanted to maintain that for this book because I wanted it to be um, a serious treatment of the team's history, the one that took it, it realistically with, with clear eyes um, and not just be a fan's uh, notes, so to speak. Um, so I really um, put a lot of effort into the, the research. It was, and it was, you know, I went into it a little naively. I didn't realize that there had been no, there really are no good histories of the Packers out there. Um, you know, Cliff Crystal, the, the longtime Wisconsin journalist who's now the team historian, does a great job on the Packers website and has written some some amazing things about the Packers. And, and he was really uh, his work of setting the team's early history straight was a big help to me. Um, but also going to the primary document of the the Green Bay Press Gazette, um, you know, I read countless issues of that uh, going back into the early 1900s and, and the you know the 18th century. Um, you know, it was really important, and so I wanted this to be a a work that, that could be taken seriously, that was accurate, and you know, I did just by doing what I did, I did away with a lot of the myths and and uh, brought out a lot of stories that people might have forgotten about, and, and hopefully, righted some wrongs. One more thing about the the book itself, and then we'll get into some of the meat in the book. You have some sure. essays in here: Peter King, Austin Murphy. I know there's a few more that I read in there. Um, yeah. 
when Yankee Stadium closed and the new Yankee Stadium opened, I know Alex Belth put together a really interesting book, kind of of other people collection of essays like Jane Levy. I know have one in there. A few other people uh, remembering the stadium, and and this made me kind of just think of that, like that idea of let's get a couple other perspectives and 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 thoughts about the Packers and their history right. and, and, and the names like Peter King and Murphy. Tell me about the decision to do that and kind of after the fact, how excited you were about, you know, they come in, you know, like it almost is like, oh, you, you ask someone for a letter of recommendation and then the recommendation comes in, you get to read and go, wow, I'm really that good. It's like that kind of like, <laughs> oh, I asked for this Packers. You read it. Wow. Peter King killed it. You know, tell me a little bit about the decision to do it. And then after the fact, having them in there and what you thought of them and how you think they help. Uh, tell the story of the Packers. Yeah, well, the essays I wanted, I wanted, you know, I didn't want to just eliminate one aspect of, of the Packers. I had, you know, they wanted, you know, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt wanted four to five different guys once we talked about it, some um, perspectives. And I thought that was that was right. You know, I, David Neft um, was the guy who put together the original baseball encyclopedia, Big Mac. Um, you know, working with a room-sized IBM computer and punch cards and things like that. And you know, really revolutionized the sports encyclopedia, um, you know, a genre. Uh, and it, she just could not get over what a great job one of the Packers co-founders, George Whitney Calhoun, uh, who worked at the Green Bay Press Gazette for years as an editor, had done as like the first real kind of like chronicler of the game, like a daily, you know, the Packers were a daily beat thing in the Green Bay Press Gazette in the early 1920s. It was an amazing thing, and that was... Primarily, Calhoun was the man behind that. Um, so I, I have him on that. I worked with with Peter King and Austin Murphy a lot at Sports Illustrated for years. Um, you know, Austin, a great friend of mine, and Peter. You know, I can't. You know, there's probably not a better reporter in the NFL right now, um, and, for, and for years. Um, you know, Peter was inside. The, you know, he was there when the Packers turned it around in the '90s, and, and uh, so I, I thought his perspective on that would be great. And Austin's so good. Um, you know, bringing kind of a uh, um, sideways look at things. And I thought that Lambeau Field and, and Curly Lambeau himself really benefited from, from Austin's treatment of them. And then I got one, an essay from Chuck Mercine, who was the fullback in the ice bowl. He only played for Lombardi for, you know, Vince Lombardi for one or two years. But he was one of the main engines of the, the success, the greatest success the Packers ever had, which was, in my opinion, the greatest game in NFL history, you know, is, is the ice bowl. Right. Um and, uh, you know, I, he was, and he was close and I could go see Chuck and, and talk to him and get his perspective on all sorts of things. And he was very accommodating when it came to writing this essay. And so, um, you know, just, just getting all the, the different perspectives from different eras and different vantage points on the team, I thought was incredibly valuable. Uh, it really, really augmented my work. And, you know, in the case of Austin saying, you know, what Austin wrote for, for the book is, is better than anything I have on the book. It's, you know, it's humbling. He's a great writer, and uh, his essay on Lambeau Field is terrific. Let's talk a little bit about the the guts of this thing. Mm-hmm. Let's start right away with the title, right? The People's Team. What makes the Packers unique in all sports is the fact that they're actually owned by the people, the team. Tell me a little bit about yeah. what you found in terms of your research and how this started, why it is the way it is, and... Um, uh, what was most interesting to you about the structure of the ownership of the Packers and how it's evolved over the hundred years of the team? 
Right. Well, I kind of went into this going into it, whatever every you know big football fan knows about the Packers is that they'd won the most championships ever. Um, they were, you know, and they have 13 NFL championships, which is a record. They, they, um, you know, are from the smallest town by far of any team in any North American pro sports. I mean, Green Bay is 100,000 people, and, and the metro area is like 300,000 people. And Dallas, I think, is, you know, the Dallas Fort Worth area is 3 million. It's ridiculous that the Packers are in the upper half of the league in revenue. Um, and they're, they're the only publicly owned team in any North American pro sport. So I knew those unique things, but I think the publicly owned thing is what, what gave rise to even more depth to the thing, because the Packers really, there's no team that I can think of, you know, in North America that is more of the place from which it comes. Like, you think of the Montreal Canadiens or the, or the New York Yankees or the Boston Celtics. And, I, you know, there's just, the Packers are connected to the people in the land in ways that's like, you know, the other teams just, just can't match. I mean, George Whitney Calhoun, the co-founder of the team of Curly Lambeau, is the grandson of the founder of the city of Green Bay, um, Daniel Whitney. Uh, so the Packers literally go all the way back. And the, the, the body of water that divides Green Bay from east from west, and the most important body of water to people who live in Green Bay is the Fox River. Uh, it's not the bay itself. Um, the Fox River, that divide, gave rise to the rivalry between east and west, which gave rise to the rivalry between Green Bay East and Green Bay West High Schools, which became so intense in the in the 19-teens that the, the state militia was patrolling the sidelines to keep order at games. Uh, Curly Lambeau was a star at Green Bay East, and so and most of the Packers on the first two teams in the in the franchise's history came from those two high schools. And so there's no separating the Packers from the people or the place. And it's just it was really remarkable to me. And you know, you know, when people make a pilgrimage to Cooperstown. You know, or to Toronto if they want to go to, you know, or Montreal if they want to go to some place for hockey, or to Springfield, Massachusetts. I mean, to do the equivalent in the NFL, I really think is to go to Green Bay and go to Lambeau Field. You talk to fans from all over who, who want to do that or have done it, um, and I don't think that's any accident um, because the Packers are so, you know, closely identified with that place, but it's so universal. This concept of like our boys, you know. Mm-hmm. What's the reality of it, like? People who own shares of the Packers, like what does that really mean? Well, I mean, it's it's not an insignificant thing. You know, that the Packers sold not-for-profit stock in 1923 and 1935 and 1950. And in each case, that money pretty much saved the team, um, you know, kept them in Green Bay and kept them going. The, money, the sales in 97 and, and 2011 were, were revenue raisers, and, and that's what they, they did what they did. But, the, you know, the Packers sustain themselves with this money. So it wasn't an insignificant thing. But if you bought stock, you know, I think the first the first stock sale, if you bought five shares or more, uh, it entitled you to a box seat at, at, a, at a home game. But otherwise, um, you know, it's, it's something to have in your wallet. It's an heirloom. You know, you cannot sell it for a profit. You cannot, uh, you realize no dividends. You get certain voting rights. But um, there's no, you know, there's no financial benefit to being a Packer shareholder. I, I got a, I got a share for Christmas a few years ago, um, which I immediately had to tell my bosses for illustrated. My mother-in-law bought me the share of the team, you know, like, just to be fully upfront. Um, but it's, it's a thing to hang in your wall. It's not, you realize no benefits from it except the knowledge that you have, have helped your favorite team, which, you know, there's, if you're a real sports fan, and I think there's just a ton of them in the country, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of comfort in that and there's a lot of benefit to that. So where does the actual money that the Green Bay Packers earned go? 
Um, it goes. They have a bottom line. They have and they have um, money that they carry over year to year, and they have expenses that you know goes to to pay the freight. Right. Um, you know, the Packers were doing very well um, from the time the NFL started. You know, started doing the the television contracts. So, like since the early sixties, they've been doing okay. And I think nineteen eighty two is the first time is the only time since like nineteen fifty six or something that they lost money. Um, it's, it's something incredible like that. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, the money is all, they, they account for it publicly. Um, they're the one, the one NFL team that does. Um, but it's, you know, their revenue doesn't, they get a lot of money from the NFL TV contract, but not any more than any other team does because of revenue sharing. So the key for them has been, uh, and it came in the renovation of Lambeau Field in the early 2000s. Uh, they turned Lambeau Field from a, a 10 day a year place you know, where the, where the lights and the water were shut off otherwise in the heat, um, to a 365-day-a-year place. You know, there's an atrium now with the, uh, the Packers Pro Shop, you know, the team's, you know, merchandise arm. Uh, the Hall of Fame is there, the team's Hall of Fame. There's a restaurant. There are meeting rooms uh, for people who have conventions in Green Bay or, or want to have, you know, meetings in Green Bay. Um, you know, they, they have tours, but it's, it's become a year-round destination. Um so that really is, you know, in, in terms of locally produced revenue, that, that has kept the Packers in the top half of the league when they're by far the smallest market. Let's talk about this stadium for a second. Do you remember the first time you were there? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's just, uh, it's a, you know, it, it's the Green Bay brand in, in one thing. It's, it's just, um, you know, by the time I saw it, you know, it was it was already becoming quite modern. Um, but it's just, it's this giant sort of modern thing plumped down in the middle of ranch homes and, and strip malls. It's it's a small town, um, but but Lambeau Field can make you forget that. And then it's just a wonderful place to watch football. When you think of the Packers, names immediately come to mind. Obviously, Lambeau, Lombardi, Favre, uh, Reggie White, Bart Starr, mm-hmm. um, Aaron Rodgers. We could go on. Um, tell me uh, about the men that make up the Packers, what you learned. Um, was there a certain era, a certain team, a certain player that doing this book, um, an anecdote you can share that really was something you sat down after and said, wow, what a part of the history of this team. That's amazing. Yeah, well, I thought that, um, I mean, you always hear about Bronco Nagurski, the, the big hard-nosed fullback for the Bears in the 30s. Um, he had a counterpart in Green Bay named Clark Hinkle, um, who... Everybody who played with Clark Hinkle thinks that he was the better player than Don Hudson because Clark Hinkle could do it all. He could catch, he could run. Um, he was, and he was just a hard-nosed, tough player on offense and defense. Hudson was essentially playing tight end because Lambeau split his ends about a yard, yard out from the line, one to, you know, three feet to six feet. Um, so he was essentially a tight end and, and was a defensive end for the first couple of years of his career. And it was just, you know, he was not a big guy. Um, so I think learning about Clark Hinkle and, and what a special player he was was, was tremendous. Uh, learning about Don Hudson and, uh, you know, the more and, and exploding some of the myths around him, you know, it was, was just great. But, but people forget. I mean, everybody remembers the game Brett Favre played after he learned that his father had died. He threw four touchdown passes against the Raiders, Raiders yeah. on a Monday night. Yeah, it was, it was just a, it was an amazing tribute to his dad. Um, but in 1943, in the season opener against the Bears, Three days before the game was played, Don Hudson got a call from his mom, where, in which she told him that his brother was confirmed 
KIA in World War II. And his father had died after receiving the news, so he had this double whammy uh, three days before kickoff of the season. And people weren't sure he was going to play. And Don Hudson did play, and then the Bears were not the Raiders. The Bears were, they hadn't lost a regular season game in almost two years. Uh, They'd lost the championship game the year before, but they'd won it the year before that. Uh, they were they were just a mighty team, and the Packers, you know, it was an upset to tie them twenty one to twenty one. And Don Hudson not only scored the tying touchdown uh, late in the fourth quarter, but he kicked all three extra points. Wow! Um, you know, it was it was an amazing performance, and he left right after the game for his dad's funeral in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Uh, and I, I I didn't know that story. I never knew that story. And I think a lot of Packers fans. You know, don't. And so I, I thought that was a cool one. And if you'll indulge me, there's there's one more. Yes, absolutely. Um, Rigney Dwyer was the end on the, the first two Packers teams in 1919 and 1920. And like all Packers, he worked a second job. And his was as a, a switchman in the, in the yards of the Milwaukee Road Railroad. Um, and a railroad switchman at the time was a, an enormously dangerous job. I mean, lost fingers and toes were common. Guys were getting killed all the time. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, the week of Thanksgiving, uh, Rigney Dwyer was run over by a, a rail car in the Milwaukee Road Yard and lost his left arm and his left leg. Um, and, you know, the Packers until then had been sort of, a, a, you know, they knew about him. George Whitney Calhoun made sure they were getting in the paper a lot, but the, the World Series was still front-page news. It was not, you know, in the fall, it was not the Packers. Um, they were covered every day, but but they weren't the biggest news in town. But, it, but that, you know, if you want a ground-zero moment... Uh, the injury of Rigney Dwyer and the way the city and the team rallied around him is really, is really it. I mean, they, you know, they, the Packers played a benefit game. They split up into two squads and played a benefit game in early December. And they raised and gave Rigney Dwyer the equivalent of almost $50,000 today. Wow. Um, all of which, because of how they'd set it up with, with um, you know, donations and things, all went to Rigney Dwyer. Um, and it was just a remarkable thing. And, and that, that was really the ground zero moment for the Packers became more than just a a thing that um, you know happened had happened two falls in a row at that point. There wasn't any constancy to city teams. There wasn't any regularity. They came and went all the time. But th- that was really the, the game that announced, or the moment that announced the Packers to the, the wider city of Green Bay, and they became uh, very popular after that. Growing up in Buffalo, you know, and being the <laughs> age that I am. Uh, yep. Right before Brett Favre, there was a there was a Magic Man that played that position of quarterback for the Packers, sure. and he actually grew up very close to where I was born and grew up. Uh, anything interesting about the Magic Man when you were uh, digging into the people's team? Yeah, you know, he was he'd been benched at halftime the week when Brett Favre came in against the Bengals. Everybody remembers that. He right, came in and and led into this amazing cover behind victory, and and never stopped starting after that. Never stopped playing after that. Um. But Mikowski, who, you know, the 89 season, to, you know, it was it was not his fault. I mean, the Packers won a bunch of games by three points or less, and, and it was a mirage. They went 10-6, and six, um, just missed the playoffs. And, that, you know, everybody from the team president, Bob Harbaugh, on down thought that Wendy and Fani and Don Mikowski were the answer. He was tremendously popular in Green Bay. Um, and, it, you know, injuries and, and the fact that, like, you cannot win so many close games and, and repeat that year after year. Um, it just caught up with him. Uh, and so, you know, when, when the Packers traded for, they traded a number one pick for Favre. Mikowski could see the writing on the wall, I think. Um, and he came out of it. He had home and benched him at halftime of a, a miserable loss to 
the Buccaneers in, in Tampa Bay in week two of the season that year. And Mikowski was pissed about it. He was mad. And he said so. Um, and then he got injured against the Bengals, and Favre came in. And, uh, you know, that was it. I mean, you know, he was um, he was done as a, as a starter in Green Bay after that. I, I think there's two interesting notes there. I mean, that was right after the year. I think right after that season, Mikowski was one of the players who filed a grievance against the NFL saying that they're there um, was a rule 32, like basically prevented him from seeking free agency. He was in the original free agent lawsuit. Wow. He was one of the parties to that. Uh, also, in terms of like his injury, um, Brett Favre gets tremendous credit for his toughness, and, and rightly so. But one thing he never forgot, um, and when the Packers drafted Aaron Rodgers in the first round, he could see the writing on the wall. One thing he never forgot was that he came in for Don Mikowski when he went down, and Brett Favre was you know, was not going to be replaced. He was he was terrified of being replaced and, and losing his spot. Uh, and so that was one reason he never came out of the lineup was was just his, you know, insistence on always being there, you know, always being available to play. It's really an amazing thing, and it all starts with Mikowski. Was it Favre that came in to the Tampa game when Mikowski was yeah. benched? Yeah. So the the Packers, he'd been a third third-round draft pick, and he was buried deep on the third string for Jerry, to the extent where Jerry Jones didn't let him throw the balls on warm-ups before a game. He was he could only throw the ball before the rest of the team came out for warm-ups. Once the rest <laughs> of the team came out, he was done. Uh, Jerry Glanville did not like him. Yeah, um, yeah, Glanville, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, and uh, and um, so he, when he was traded to Green Bay, Ron Wolf, the Packers had two first-round picks, and Ron Wolf traded one of them to to Buffalo because they were going to use a first-round pick on a quarterback anyway. Um, but but Ron Wolf loved Brett Favre from his days at Southern Miss. I was always uh, upset that when he'd been with the Jets, they, you know, the Falcons had taken him right before the Jets were about to pick him. Um, and I think the Jets took Brownie Nagel instead, which was, you know, just wasn't the same. Right. Um, Louisville, right? You know, and, Nagel, Louisville. Right, yeah. yeah. And so, and so um, you know, Favre was, you know, Favre... Favre came into Green Bay as kind of an unknown quantity, but they traded a first-round pick to get a third-round pick. Um, so people didn't know what to make of it. Um, and so but Mikowski knew that if they'd given up a first-round pick, it was it was significant. Um, and, and he was benched at, I believe, halftime. Uh, when they were just, it was a, and Favre didn't play well either in the second half. I mean, it was not like there was, you know, Mikowski was starting the next game. So Favre hadn't assumed the starting job by the time Mikowski went down against the, uh, the Bengals, he, you know, Favre was really thrust into the spotlight. But in that game are all the great things that made Brett Favre such a galvanizing figure for so many years. The the amazing arm, uh, the, you know, uncanny feel for the game, uh, but also the bonehead decisions right. and the what is going on here. I mean, one thing that Mikowski was the holder on field goals and extra points, and Favre had to take that over when Mikowski went down, and Favre had no idea how to do it. And you get, you know, Chris Jackie, their kicker, who was totally reliable, missed two field goals that day. Um, and you can see Farrah was so paranoid about making a mistake on the on the extra point that actually put the Packers in the lead for good at the end of the game. He balances the ball on its point and completely takes his hands off the ball before Jackie kicks the ball because he did not want to mess anything up. It was, you know, it, it's all there. The, the whole Farrah experience in one game is, is it's pretty incredible. More great stuff about Farrah in the book. Uh... Peter King has an interesting uh, thing in his essay. And, and of course, uh, in the, I don't know if you've read it, uh, Mark, but uh, Jeff Perlman, a uh, great book, Gunslinger on Favre, and talks a little bit mm-hmm. about the, mm-hmm. what you were talking about with Rodgers. One last thing on the Packers. Uh, you mentioned free agency and the Magic Man being part of that. 
lawsuit, when you talk about NFL free agents, there's really only two names, I think, that have an argument for being the greatest free agent signing of all time. Drew Brees, Reggie White. You're the Packers yeah. guy. Make the case for Reggie White. and Maybe explain to me a little bit more about what him signing with Green Bay meant from kind of a cultural standpoint, which I know yeah. is a big argument from Packers fans on why they think he's the best um, free agent signing of all time. Well, Reggie White was really the uh, final final thing in a, in a series, in a sequence of five events that uh, changed the team forever or for the next generation and more. Um, Bob Harlan hires Ron Wolf in, in November 91. Uh, in January 91, Ron Wolf hires Mike Holmgren to be the coach. And in February 91, he trades for Brett Favre. Um, or in February 92. So January 92 and February 92, Holmgren Favre. And then in April of 93, they signed Reggie White as a free agent. And it was an earth-shaking thing. I mean, Reggie White was the first, you know, he was in the first NFL free agent class. Um, and he's, you know, was the prize of that class in many ways. You know, I think, I think your, your comparison is very apt that, you know, it was, it was transformative. I, you know, Drew Brees coming to the Saints. Um, I asked Ron Wolf about it and he said it was landscape changing. I mean, Ron Wolf was not a sentimental guy. Um, and he's like, why did we get Reggie White? Cause we offered him the most money. And that's exactly right. <laughs> but Ron Wolf, Ron Wolf has also, you know, appealed to the romance and the, you know, the, the glory in Reggie as well, because he, he said to Reggie, he's like, you're a great player. You know, in, in a strike shortened season, I think of 89 or whatever, 87, the NFL went on strike for a while. Uh, there was a lockout. Yeah, 87. Um, yep. Yeah, they, they, were, they played, the NFL played 12 games, and Reggie White had 21 sacks in those 12 games. Wow. Which was one off the NFL record for a 16-game season. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> so he, he was like, come to, come to Green Bay. You know, you're, you're a great player. You're going to be remembered as a great player, but come to Green Bay. And you'll be a legend, and that really, you know, Reggie really bought into that because Green Bay hadn't even been on his radar before that. And in terms of like, you know, in another way in which it was landscape altering was Green Bay had been for so long a Siberia of all NFL players. You know, it was just the end of the earth. Right. Um, but especially so to African American players because it was a, you know, they're just Green Bay is like oh, less than one percent of the population is, is African American. Um, so there was no place to get your haircut. There was no place to get soul food or any of the, the things that might appeal to a player, you know, playing in a place like Atlanta or something like that. Um, there was none of that in Green Bay. Um, and so Ron Wolf did some things to change that. He started having a soul food restaurant cater meals uh, in the locker room one day a week. Uh, he started bringing a barber up from Milwaukee to cut players' hair every week. Um, but bringing Reggie White in is what really solidified you know, the transformation of that term in of that team and that franchise in the eyes of, of African American players in the league. I mean, players saw Reggie White going there and, and the Packers were able to trade or sign for sign uh, trade for or sign, you know, Sean Jones, a defensive end, Keith Jackson a tight end, Desmond Howard and Andre Risen, these receivers, these incredible receivers. And it was it was not a no brainer that you didn't want to go to Green Bay anymore. And there's no player more responsible for that than Reggie White, who really redeemed the Packers organization in a lot of ways. Give me the, just for fun, give me your Mount, Mush, Mount Rushmore of Green Bay Packers. <laughs> That's oh, a tough one. Yeah. No, I have to tell you, it's a tough one. I mean, I mean, how do Lambeau and Lombardi not go on? And right. so they have to go on. Yep. Um, and how does Favre not go on? Has to go on. But so if, then if it's the fourth Favre spot. There, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, Star has got to be the fourth spot, but it, 
what about what about Paul Horning? I mean, who was a tremendous halfback. He was he was Lombardi's favorite player, and he was who Lombardi felt was his best player. You know, there's that story about Lombardi saying Forrest Craig was the finest player I ever coached. But one thing I found was that nobody can find that actual quote. And, huh. uh, you know, it, it seems to be apocryphal. And so it, we're not sure that Lombardi ever said it. We know he called uh, Horning, you know, his favorite player. Um, so it was, you know, but but then you, how do you leave Don Hudson off? How do you leave uh, Johnny Blood off? And so it becomes an incredibly difficult thing. And so Lombardi and Lambo have to go. And if you have two more faces, I, I think one of them's got to be Favre. Uh, and and one of them probably has to either be Don Hudson or Bart Starr, but it's 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 tough. tough I mean, one. the Packers defense in the late sixties. Yeah, nobody talk nobody talks about the Packers defense in the late sixties anymore. But they had six Hall of Famers wow. starting. I mean, I can't think of a defense that, that had so many. You always hear about the Steel Curtain, and you always hear about the Ravens and, and, the, and the Bears in nineteen eighty five. Yeah, but I mean, six Hall of Famers. I just, I just can't imagine. And you know, the Packers. You know. Bart Starr did what he did, but one reason I, I sort of put far above Bart Starr a little bit is like Bart Starr early in his career had the best running game in the NFL, Jim Taylor and Paul Horning, and he had a great offensive line the whole time. And then on the defense, you know, in the latter part of his career, he was playing on the opposite side of the ball as the greatest defense in the game, uh, one of the best defenses of all time. And so it's, you know, it's only by degrees that you can group these things in, the, in any sort of Mount Rushmore, right? I think Farr's got to go up there for me, and, and you probably have to put Don Hudson up there, but it's so tough. The People's Team, the hundred. Uh, this is for the 100th anniversary, the People's Team and Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers. Listen, if you're looking for a Christmas gift for a Packers fan, I can't think of a better one. I mean, you probably have to like buy Brett Favre's game-worn socks or something to get better than this, but uh, <laughs> it's a beautiful book. Like we said, it kind of presents like a coffee table book, but it really reads like any other um, book about the team. I can't say enough good things about it. The People's Team and Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers. Uh, Amazon, of course, is a great place to buy books. But like we said, if you get a chance to put this in your hands and touch it at like a Barnes & Noble in your city, do it because you won't. You probably won't put it back down. And I thought the most unbelievable thing about it, when I opened it, it came in the mail. When I opened it and I looked at it, I said to my wife, I said, this has got to be a $100 book they just sent me. And then you open the cover, and it's $35 suggested retail. Um, higher in Canada, but probably not that much higher. Um, so what a value for 35 bucks! I mean, if I was a Packers fan, I'd pay 100 without blinking for this. So um, really just a beautiful thing. Mark, uh, I know i got to let you go because you probably have other things to do than talk to a jabroni from Buffalo all day. But can I get two quick ones in, one on Players Tribune and one on Sports Illustrated? Sure. What, what do you need? Okay. Let's do Sports Illustrated first because we're only a week or two um, out from yeah. – I don't want to be hyperbolic here, but maybe the demise of what we knew sport of, of Sports Illustrated, what it was. It's certainly a transition into a new era for the magazine. You spent a lot of time there in your professional career. Um, what was your reaction uh, a few weeks ago when the news came down and kind of what do you think – I won't ask you what do you think becomes of Sports Illustrated because you're not there anymore. But when you think of Sports Illustrated and its role in sports the last however many years, what do you ultimately think its legacy will be? 
Well, I mean, first of all, the, the news about what happened, like, I, you know, I hope it's not the demise of Sports Illustrated because I still have a lot of friends who, who work there who have been doing a great job the last few years. Still great writers, yeah. Pretty tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and um, I, I love that magazine, and I, I love the people there, and, and uh, you know, that was that was one of the best times of my life was, was when I worked at Sports Illustrated. Um, so I, I hope I hope there are good things for it in the future, that the comments from the people uh, with the Maven and uh, that the the um, licensing company that I think is, is the primary owner of the magazine now, they were not encouraging. Um, it's probably the best way to put it. Right. Um, but, you know, hopefully hopefully they, they, they get it or they see the light. And, uh, you know, good journalism happens there because there are still good journalists there. You know, I... I can't say enough about some of the people who still work there. Right, I saw Price, some of the for people, example. Huh? Right, some Verducci. of the people who lost their jobs were good friends of mine, and, and I just, you know, my heart goes out to them. Uh, in terms of, like, what SI meant to me, I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing what I did if it, if it wasn't for William Knack and the stories he wrote in the magazine and, and Gary Smith. And, I mean, even Rick Riley, I think, comes in for unfair criticism today because he was a terrific, uh, not only column writer, but features writer when he was at SI in his heyday. His story in the 86 Masters on Jack Nicholas winning the 86 Masters is just, it's still one of the best things that's ever been in the magazine on Deadline. You know, it, it was, I always wanted to work on a magazine. My favorite kind of writing to read is still magazine writing. Um, and so I, I love that place in, in a way that I, you know, no other magazine ever really got to me. Sports Illustrated got to me. And, and uh, you know, I, I just, um, I hope it still goes. Last thing, and we'll get you out of here on this. I think it's 2016. You make the move. You go to Players' Tribune. You're there now. It seems like every mm-hmm. month, maybe every quarter, I wake up and I go into Twitter, and everyone is sharing or talking about a Players' Tribune article. It's like, uh, oh, you got to read yeah. um, P.K. Subban or talking about getting traded. or you know, I can't think of a specific one off the top of my head, of course. I should have probably written one or two down. <laughs> But but it seems like every quarter or every month or whatever that happens. You know what exactly what I mean. You guys put right. something well, up I mean, and everyone's sharing it. It's everywhere. Um, tell yeah. me a little bit about. We talked about the past of SI. Tell me a little bit about what you see as the future of the Players Tribune. Well, I got here in like uh, January, February of May of 2016, somewhere in the spring. Um, so the place was about a year and a half old when I got here. I'd been at SI when it started up, and I was like, that's an interesting idea, but it seems kind of like a PR operation for athletes. But it's it's become something much better than I could have ever imagined. I mean, to show you how short-sighted I am. You know, the vision that, that some of the guys who started this place had for it is, is really good, and that goes directly to Cheever. Um, this place is at its best when, when um, the athletes are open and honest. I think, you know, Kevin Love's story on mental health and... and uh, Two words, you know, piece about uh, her relationship with um, Megan Rapino. Um, they're just they're really uh, good in, in ways that, like, some of the best stuff at Sports Illustrated was good um, and revealing and informative and uh, you know, galvanizing and energizing, you know, in a way. Um, and I, I think that the, the people who have been in the creation of this place have really uh, tapped into something special there. And I think you see a lot of places that do first-person player stories now, but I. I think, you know, one thing I like about the Players' Tribune in our future is that, um, in my opinion, and I'm biased, of course, but we, we know how to do it best. And I think that, you know, the, the stuff that they produce here is, is um, that we produce here is really is terrific. 
All right, Mark is on Twitter. He's at Mark, B-E-E-C-H, and then the number two, P-T, and then the number zero. I'm assuming you maybe yeah. had one that died, and now we're on uh, the second incarnation. Um, there's great right. um, pictures of the book we talked about on here and links on how to buy it. Again, it's the People's Team and Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers. It's beautiful. I can't recommend it enough. Mark, is there anything else you want to promote or anything else you want to mention about the book or the Players' Tribune or anything else? Yeah, well, no, I just, um, I mean, you've been so generous in every time and, and with the um, the praise of the book, I, I really, I can't thank you enough. Um, I just, I think that, like, if you're a fan of the NFL uh, in general, this, there's stuff in this book for you, too, because I think the story of the Packers, in a lot of ways, is the story of the NFL. Yeah, you don't have to be a Packers fan. Hopefully I made that clear because, yeah. I mean, I'm not a Packers fan. Uh, I don't necessarily – I mean, I'm not against the Packers or anything either. I, I, I've always – I love Brett Favre. I've loved to watch him play. Um, love to watch Aaron Rodgers play. So I'm no um, hater of them either, but, man, it's a beautiful right. book. Mark, thank you so much for all the time. I appreciate you. Best oh, of luck. Thanks a lot. It was great to be here. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I want to thank Mark Beach and John Feinstein for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and all of the Sportscasters podcasts on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can find us on Twitter. We're at sports underscore casters there. If you would like to email me, if you'd like a copy of the People's Team and Illustrated History of the Green Bay Packers, email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com, and I can send one to you. I have one copy. Um, and I will send one to someone who emails me. If anyone, if I have multiple people email me, I will pick one out. Random draw. Uh, also, this podcast is on Apple Podcast and Stitcher. Please give me a five-star review if you would. Strangely, someone took out the time to give me like a two-star review. I don't really see the point of that. I'd never do that to anyone else. Uh, so maybe if we can get some five-star reviews, that would be helpful. If you're a listener of the show, I'd appreciate that. Uh, but no big deal either way. Also, greetings from Allentown, my friend Peter Winson. I've said it many times, it's my favorite single-man wrestling podcast in the world. For more information, his Twitter is at GFAllentownPod. His latest episode is, I think, about a 1993 WWF show. Uh, please check him out. Adrian Dater, my boy Dater, ColoradoHockeyNow.com is his website. Uh, he's out there working on his own, covering the beat. The Avalanche may have had a devastating injury tonight. D'Amico Ratnan, we'll find out more about that. If you're interested in what happened and what's going to happen, uh, follow Adrian on Twitter. He's at Adater on Twitter, uh, at College Hockey Now on Twitter. Adrian's suffering through a bad back, which I hope heals. I hope he feels better. I'm praying for him. He's my buddy. Uh, Please check out his work. And also, my friends at Place to Be Nation, Justin, and also... Scott, they're on Twitter, place number two, B-E Nation. That's the word place, the number two, the word B Nation on Twitter. Their website is just all words, placetobenation.com. They're getting ready to fire up a, a tournament on 
the greatest sitcom of all time. They recently did an 80s music, uh, greatest 80s music song tournament, which was won by Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Uh, shout out to some friends of the podcast, Bill McGrath and Fred Cass. Uh, also, uh, everyone else who listens, if you want a shout out on the show, send me an email. I'll mention you. I appreciate everyone who listens. Okay. With all that said, we will do one last thing. Now, it has been well documented on this show that I have not had the best of years. 2019 has not been, I don't think when I rank the years of my life, I don't know this one will crack the top five. Uh, I had a bowel reconstruction in April, and then I had to wear a colostomy bag for a few months, and then I had a ileostomy reversal surgery, and now I am getting ready for a surgical hernia surgery. It's been a tough year, and I kind of felt like I needed something which I struggled with because it felt selfish to me because I, despite those struggles, I have everything like a man can dream of. I have a wife I love, a daughter I love, you know, a house. I don't know. I have what I need and, and what I love and what I want. And I, I take Crohn's disease in stride and I don't complain about it or I try not to. Um. Again, in many ways, I'm spoiled, but I felt like I needed something this year. Uh, So for my birthday, uh, instead of raising money on Facebook for some cause to get attention, uh, I decided to ask my family to pitch in money to send me to New Orleans for a Saints game. Uh, I haven't been to New Orleans for I hadn't been to New Orleans for a game since 2008, which means I haven't been there since they won the Super Bowl. So I hadn't seen Champion Square. And I hadn't seen the banner, and I wanted to badly see Drew Brees again in in, in a Saints uniform, uh, just in case this was the last year. And just everything felt right, and it, I felt like, all right, I'm going to talk to my, my wife about this and see if she thinks it's a good idea, and I'm going to start shopping it. And honestly, it wasn't that bad. I think it was like $630 for the flight and for the hotel for a few nights, and it was a, a pretty decent hotel. Uh, so I ended up booking it. And of course, Drew Brees got hurt, and at that moment, if I would have bought the insurance, I would have canceled it. Uh, but I didn't buy the insurance, so I didn't cancel it. And um, I ended up leaving on a Saturday morning. My flight was, uh, my dad picked me up at my house at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning. This was two weeks ago. So the first weekend of October, my dad picked me up on Saturday morning and drove me to the airport. Uh, I quickly got through the security in Buffalo, I had a sandwich for breakfast, and I got on the plane. The first plane was this was um, this was a Delta on the way there, and my first flight was Buffalo to Detroit, and then I was going to fly uh, Detroit to New Orleans. So the first flight uh, was slightly delayed, I believe, like fifteen minutes or something. Nothing crazy. Uh, but it was funny because I get in the airport and I'm looking at the screens and every flight is on time but mine. So it wasn't a big deal, though. It was a, it was a small delay, not as bad as the one coming home, which we'll talk about. So I get on that plane, take that flight, nondescript, touch ground on the Detroit airport and have to walk basically all the way across it to board my plane to New Orleans. Now, 
I have an issue with my foot, my right foot. Something is wrong with it. I don't know if I have a broken bone or uh, toral. I don't know. Something's wrong with my right foot, and I can't walk that great. And my doctor was looking at it and wants me to go see a foot doctor. And I said, okay, but let me get all this other stuff done first, and then I'll worry about my foot. So I'm lugging myself across this airport, and people are getting pissed off at me because I'm not walking fast enough, which is like a theme for the whole trip. I felt like I was always in someone's way. Uh, which was annoying. I'm like an 85-year-old, 35-year-old, if that makes any sense. 35, I wish. I'm 39. I'm like an 85-year-old, 39-year-old. Anyway, I uh, got to Detroit, and I wanted to get Chick-fil-A, and I walked by. Somehow, the Chick-fil-A was directly next to my gate. So there was my gate, Chick-fil-A. That close. Uh, So I wanted to get a chicken sandwich for lunch and a chicken sandwich for the hotel. In New Orleans, and uh, when I walked up, they were boarding the plane already, but I figured I had time, so I go in line, and I get the sandwich, and uh, something happened with the, she accidentally ordered breakfast for me, and this is like right around the time where you'd switch from breakfast to lunch, and uh, the manager came out, and he's like, you can just take this for free, um, we'll worry about that, so he gave me my money back, he said, take it for free, I'd handed her like $7 to pay for it, he said, here, just take it, go ahead, and get on your, your flight, we'll worry about this stuff, great. So I walk around the corner, and I'm the last one to board the plane. And I know I'm the last one. I think I had seat, like, 28A or something. And when I walk up, there was two people uh, still checking in. And I want to say they were in, like, row 13. And the lady said to them, this flight's only about half full. So if you want to sit in row 12, that's empty, too. And there's a little bit more leg room there. Okay. And they get on the plane. So in my head, I know, first of all, I'm the last one on the plane. And so I know that for sure. And I know that I, that this plane is half full. So while I'm walking on, I see that row 10 is completely empty. All six seats all the way across are empty. So I just throw my bag above, close it, and sit down on the window seat of row 10. Like that was the seat I was assigned. Nobody said a word to me. I didn't think anything of it. They come up to me. They ask if I want lunch service. I didn't know there was lunch service. I said, no, thank you. I had lunch. They're being really nice to me. Uh, there's a lot of leg room. There's a TV right on the seat. I'm direct. I was There's first class, and I was like in the next row. And I'm like, this is a great, this is a great seat. Why? Well, like, I really lucked out. You know, like, this is a great flight. And I'm watching the actual watching the OU game, which was on ESPN. So I'm, I'm going to get some luck there to watch OU on the flight. And they are offering headphones. So I get up, I go to the bathroom, I throw some garbage out, and I ask the flight attendant if I could have a set of the headphones. She's like, well, you know, she's kind of like, I think maybe they charge for them. But I heard, heard her offer the guy in front, like behind me a pair. And I said, oh, I just, I'm just asking because I thought I had heard you offer the guy next to me. Apparently she's like, oh, where are you sitting? I'm like, in row 10. She's like, oh, okay, here you go, here you go. No problem. Yeah, they're complimentary. I'm like, okay. So I'm starting to put everything together, and I realized that I had taken a seat uh, that was in like a business class or something. Uh, I was not in a seat that I paid for. I had weaseled my way not into first class, but into the section that Delta offers in between first class uh, and coach. So that was great. Big win for me. Great flight. I get there. I take the taxi ride to the hotel, check into the hotel. I think I got there around two-ish, uh, maybe it was three. 
Check-in wasn't until 4, but my room was ready. Room was on the fourth floor. Great hotel is on Julia Street, 300 Julia. Close enough to the Superdome. Close enough to the French Quarter. Uh, right by the um, convention center. And uh, there's a little mall right by there. Perfect. Go up. I think I took a little bit of a nap. And then I took a uh, car ride down to the French Quarter. And my plan was I'm going to get some dinner. You know, I'm going to have, um, I want to have fried chicken, Cajun fried chicken, really badly. And I want to have the best. So I search on Google what's the best. And the first place chicken is somewhere that's not anywhere near me. But the second place chicken is a place called Coops. And it's right basically at the edge of the French Quarter. So I'm like, all right, I'm less than a mile away. I'll just walk there. So I walk basically through the whole French Quarter, which is pretty cool. You know, there's a lot of people out. LSU had played earlier in the day. There's a lot of LSU fans out celebrating. So cool, whatever. It's a stinky, dirty street. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of um, Bourbon Street, but eh, I'm in New Orleans. I'll take a walk down. And then eventually I get to this restaurant, Coops. And it's a little hole in the wall, it seems like, and there's a line out front of it. So I ask the people who are waiting in the line, uh, you know, are you waiting in line? Confirm with them that that's actually a line for the restaurant. And they say it is. And I say, well, what's the process? They're like, they come out. And the one girl's like, well, are you by yourself? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, well, you should go inside because there's some seats in there, I think, for one. So they might be able to seat you in there. So I go in, and the second I walk in the door, they start screaming at me. No, no. Get out of here. We'll come and get you. There's a line. Get in the line. Oh, so they just jump me. So I'm like, oh, my goodness. This place means business. So I'm standing in this line. They come out. I tell them, yeah, party of one, whatever. The whole time I'm in the line, all the people around me, are the late one lady especially, is like, I don't want to eat here. This place is disgusting. I've never seen a place so dirty. If it's this dirty where we can see, imagine how dirty it is in the kitchen. Who recommended this? Why are we here? And I'm listening to all this, and they've been mean to me, and I'm thinking, like, should I bail? And I'm like, nah, I'll trust it. I want to have good chicken. I don't really care about anything else. So about 15 minutes or so passed. It wasn't a long wait. Lady comes out, says, yeah, table for one here. You're at the bar over here. So I get go and sit down. They're not very nice. You know, they're not friendly. Uh, but this is what I ordered. First of all, I got sweet tea uh, to drink at the bar. I don't think they were happy. I think they were kind of pissed I wasn't drinking alcohol. Then I ordered the three-piece Cajun chicken, fried chicken for my dinner, which comes with coleslaw. I got the seafood gumbo, and I got, for an appetizer, these marinated cold crab claws. Soup came first, 8.9 soup. Crab claws come out, 9.5 crab claws. Fried chicken comes out, 9.9 fried chicken. The best I've ever had in my life. Bill wasn't even 30 bucks. Amazing restaurant. If you ever go to New Orleans and you can handle a little bit, of grime and loud music when you're trying to eat and mean servers and all that, the food is worth it. Coops. So after that, I jump in an Uber and I go to Harrah's, which is a casino there. Uh, I take 200 bucks out of the ATM and I sit down and I play poker. I pay, played for about three hours and I think I lost like 45 bucks. I missed out on a chance to win a huge pot. Uh, I folded after the flop, and my flush, which would have been the nut flush, came on the turn, and there would have been three players probably all in, and I would have basically tripled up. 
but the world hates me having money. So, of course, I folded like the little girl that I am, which is why I need sports betting for winners because I'm a sports better for loser while a poker better for losers, apparently. Uh, but I got to play and sit down and talk and relax, and I love being being at the felt and playing poker. It's really fun. I'm not that great at it, but I love to play it, and uh, especially in a casino in that live setting. And I had a great time. And then I went back to the hotel, and I got I wanted to get to bed early, and I did. Uh, it had been a long day anyway, uh, because my plan was to go uh, to the dome early. And here's why I wanted to go to the dome early. So. About eight days, and I hope I haven't lost you. <laughs> if I have, it's okay. Uh, but about eight days before the trip, I thought to myself, you're pretty friendly with Joe Buck, and he's a very powerful guy. You should text him and see if he can get you a field pass. And you can walk around on the field and be on the Superdome turf and, you know, you can just be down there. It'd be so cool and watch the players warm up and all that. You should do that. And it took me a while to to, to get the guts up to text him. And I sent him a message because I don't like asking people for favors, especially people who do this show, because I feel like it's already a favor for them to do it. I just don't like taking advantage of people like that. And I just assume they wouldn't want to do it for me. And it's just really uncomfortable for me. But I got the courage and I did it. And I sent Joe the text. And honestly, he responded in like 30 seconds and was like, sure, no problem. He wrote something which my mom thinks is hilarious. Uh, here, let me see. I know I have the picture. I deleted the text. I'm horrible at saving text. I always like to delete everything. Uh, but I know I sent this you know, to my mom and uh, the picture of the text. So it shouldn't be too far back. So I should be able to scroll to it real quick here. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I okay, so here's what I said. Here's what I said to Joe. I said, first, I, hey, Joe, I have to apologize, but I got to shoot my shot here. Uh, I apologize if I'm overstepping, but I hope you understand I had to ask. You know all I've been through in 2019, two surgeries, a bag for four months. I'm just battling. And for my birthday, my family is sending me to the Saints game this weekend. I'm just going by myself, flying out Saturday, game Sunday, coming home Monday. So anyway, I have to ask. I know this is a Fox game. Do you think you could help me get a pregame field pass? And then I wrote, it took me six days to get the guts to send that. I hate asking for a favor, and I never want to put you in a spot. It's absolutely no problem if you can't do anything or don't even want to respond to me. I just feel like I had to ask. Hope you and the boys and Michelle are well. I apologize again. Like I said, within 30 seconds, he writes this. For sure, just be cool with it and don't do anything crazy, please. So I'm going to have to ask Joe when he's on, like what in his mind that would have been. Well, you know, that I would do. I don't know what I would do crazy, but. Uh, so when I was going down there that day, I texted Joe and I said, hey, you know, what do I have to do? And he said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the number to the guy who's producing the game and you text him and you'll make arrangements to get the pass. So that was a guy named Fran Morrison, who I want to give a shout out and a thank you to. Uh, and I talked to Fran and he said, listen, just text me when you get to the stadium and I'll have someone come out and give you the pass. We're located in between the dome and the arena. So I wanted to take an Uber down there. I knew it would be a long day, a lot of walking. I was worried about my foot. So I wanted to leave early enough where the Uber would be able to drive up, not have to worry about traffic. So I left the hotel. Now the game there starts at noon instead of 1. So keep that in mind. So I left the hotel, I want to say, right around 9 o'clock. And I got to the stadium at like 9.15. And I'm standing at the edge of the, the uh, 
as far as I could get without them yelling. And they were very strict and nasty in general at the stadium. And um, I called Fran and I said, I'm here. And he said, you know, I'll send the guy out. And while I'm waiting, uh, Alvin Kamara pulled up in his Jeep. And he, he walked into the stadium. He had a backwards Braves hat on. And, um, yeah, it's cool to see him pull up. And uh, he just leaves his car basically like right in front of the stadium. And I assume someone parks it for him. And he walks in and does uh, his business. But um, so Frank, Fran's assistant comes out. And I wasn't really sure. The Superdome doesn't open to the public until 10, I believe. And I wasn't really sure how it was going to work. But basically the guy's like, I'll just walk you in. So I walked in the back door of the Superdome. I never even had my ticket scanned. You know, I went through security and they patted me down and all that. But no one was looking for my ticket. I was basically got in with the with the pass they gave me. The pass they gave me was like a media pass. And it did say on there that if you were going to be on the field, you, you had to be working. So I was a little bit worried I might get run because I wasn't working. I mean, I had a Saints jersey on. I had Drew Brees jersey on. So I got in there really early and he took me to the trucks and I got to check out the inside of the production truck, which was really cool. I took a picture, but they asked me not to tweet it or anything. So I'm going to respect that. If you ever see me, I will show it to you if you're interested. But in the truck at the time was Daryl Johnston. I got to meet him. He's a Buffalo guy. I got to talk to him. We talked about Buffalo High School football. Um, I guess I'm from North Tonawanda, which is a city north of Buffalo, part of the Buffalo suburbs. And... He's like, oh, we played them when I was in high school. It's like, oh, cool, you know, whatever. And uh, we talked for a few minutes, and that was really cool, and the truck was awesome, and I got to thank Fran, shake his hand, awesome. Uh, they had some porta potties over there. I got to take a quick leak. They had a spread, a buffet, a huge buffet out, but I didn't touch that. I didn't know if I was welcome to the food or not. Uh, basically, I just walked right onto the field, and there wasn't a lot of people out there, and I, I took a huge lap, walked around the whole field, was looking around, took a photo of the banner. You know, I'm a huge banner guy, and just to be able to stand behind, you know, below the Super Bowl banner was just awesome for me. Um, and then I tried to just kind of stay out of the way because the security guards, like, I'd stay in one place, and they'd come like, you can't stand there. Go stand somewhere else. And I'd move over somewhere else. Oh, don't stand there. And I think the problem was there's just, like, so few people on the field at this point, and there's so many security guards it's like they no one had anything to do but bother me and i was trying to just follow the rules i didn't want i'm a guest of joe buck so i don't want to do anything wrong you know but i don't want to get kicked out either so anyway finally more people start to show up and people kind of leave me alone and again i'm doing nothing anyway i'm just standing there uh, and i'm watching and observing and finally like the tampa bay buccaneers arrived uh, I watched them walk in. The whole team walked in and walked all the way across the field to the other side to get to their dressing room. So I saw the Bucks arrive, which was not that interesting to me because I could care less about really anyone on the Bucks. Uh, there was really no one I was like wanted to see or anything like that. So, but I did see them. I guess that was interesting to see an NFL team arrive at the stadium, kind of all together like that. And I seen, you know, various media members that were doing pregame spots. I just checking things out. Then players start to come out and Drew Brees came out and Drew is warming up. He's exercising his thumb. He's working out. Then the player, you know, the position groups start warming out. The kickers are and punters are warming up. You know, Will Lutz is banging field goals. And it was getting kinda to a point 
where I was like, okay, I think I should probably leave. Uh, they had announced that the Superdome was open at some point and more fans were starting to come. And I was standing at the front of like the, I guess the um, rope that was set up on the Saints sideline, you know, to say like, don't go past this. Now I probably could have, I never really knew for sure what I could and couldn't do. Uh, so I didn't push it, but that probably also means I probably didn't get as much out of it as maybe I could. But you'll hear in a second, I got everything I wanted and more. So I'm getting to the point where I'm like, you know, maybe I should get out of the way here, let other people get in front here, take their pictures. And I kind of walked away and I was just kind of watching. I'm not a big picture guy, so I didn't take a lot of pictures on the field. I just kind of watched it, just kind of lived in the moment like people always say you should. And I'm just about to leave the field. And I'm like, well, let me go stand over here. There's the one rope that goes across the sideline, and there's one that goes down into the tunnel of the Saints um, dressing room. And there was like maybe four people along that. So I stood at the end of that and was just kind of like looking into the Saints dressing room uh, to see who might be coming out. So I, Peyton hadn't been out, and I was curious to see if Coach Peyton had, would come out at all. And while I'm doing that, I look up, and like I said, there was maybe five people along this rope, and I noticed that Drew Brees has come to that rope and is talking to the the person close furthest from me and autographing their stuff and taking pictures, and I kind of knew at that moment, wow, this is going to happen. I am going to meet Drew Brees on the field of the Superdome. And I kind of had a minute or two before he got to me to kind of take a couple breaths and kind of prepare myself as best as I could uh, for the moment. So he comes up to me and he says, would you like me to sign your shirt? And I said, yes. And I had a Sharpie, but he had one in his hand and he signed his shirt and then he's signing. I said, you know, I'm really nervous to shake your hand. Can I just give you a hug? And he said, okay. And I gave him a hug, and then I said to him, you have made all my dreams as a sports fan come true, and I want to thank you. And it's a little loud in there. They're playing music, but, I mean, we're very close. I think he heard me. He smiled, and I said, could we take a picture? And he said, yes, and we took a picture, and it's on my social media, at sports underscore casters or at sportscasters on Instagram if you want to check out the picture. And then I said, thank you. And he ran off, and it was pretty much as simple as that. Um, and it was amazing. Now, a lot of people have been saying to me, like, oh, bucket list. I don't have a fucking bucket list, okay? I don't even know what that means. That's dumb internet talk. This wasn't that. This was like a dream come true. This was an opportunity uh, to personally thank someone who's meant so much to me, uh, to be able to thank them for what they've meant and what they've done to me for me in a bad year for me i got to stand in front of drew hug drew and say thank you thank you for making my dreams as a sports fan come true i think i said to him something like you know i've had a bad year and my family sent me here or something like that it's almost kind of a blur like i after i kind of went away for a second kind of stood to the side and kind of like composed myself but yeah, so I don't know about bucket lists or anything. I don't have a fucking list. Uh, but I know that it was amazing. 
And thank you to Joe Buck. Listen, people hate Joe Buck. I don't know why you hate Joe Buck if you do. Uh, People think he hates the Yankees, and people think he hates the Astros. And if you look at his Twitter during the baseball game, there's six jerk-offs tweeting that he's being biased towards the Yankees, and another six tweeting that he's being biased towards the Astros in the same game. And then there's people trolling Joe Buck, saying what a horrible job he's doing announcing a game he ain't even announcing. But I'll tell you what, he didn't have to do that for me, and he did it. And I'll never forget him for that. And I'll always love him for that. And I'll always defend him. And I can't thank him enough. And I can't wait on this show, hopefully in a few weeks, to be able to thank him. I sent him a card. I bought a thank you card and I wrote a handwritten note. And I mailed it to him at his house um, and thanked him. So that was Drew Brees. That was meeting him. Incredible moment. I'll never forget it. I got a picture to to document it. I'm not a picture guy. uh, But that felt like one worth taking. Uh, and I got my jersey signed, and that's going to go in a frame with my field pass. Uh, I eventually went upstairs. I was going to go to the team store. I took one step in and one step out. It was mobbed. I figured I'd come back on Monday, which I eventually did, and I got a really nice kind of windbreaker sweater-type hybrid thing. But um, the game was great. My seat was great. I was down. I've now sit, sat in the rafters, in the suites, and in the 100-level of the stadium, I've kind of had all tiers of it and experienced it. I had a great seat, um, great people around me, fun game. They played great. Bridgewater is probably his best game he'll ever play as a Saint. And when you go all the way down there, the last thing you want is for them to lose. And luckily, they've never lost a game I've been to there. And it was just, it was an amazing weekend, right? I mean, everything, the only negative was Tammy and Paula weren't there. You know, I didn't, or, you know, or my brother, Greg, right? Just, I didn't get, or Anthony or my mom, I didn't get to share it with anyone. And I love to do that. You know, I love to share my passions. Like Greg has gone with me to Pittsburgh for a Saints game. And we had such a great time that day. I always think about that. It's one of the few games I've seen them lose, you know, but I always remember being there with Greg and what a great time we had and what a great stadium it was and what a cool game in the first year of the Breeze and Peyton era. So that was the only negative, but wow, what a great day. Perfect day. Perfect. Nothing to complain about. Except for Uber. What a shitty company Uber is. I hope it fails. Uh, then eventually I made my way back to the hotel. And I took a nap. And then I went out and got more fried chicken. That was great at this place called Gus's Famous Chicken or something like that. It was really good there too. And then I brought extra pieces and took them back to the hotel. Uh, and I went to bed and I returned home the next day. There was a long delay on my flight um, home, the very last flight of four uh, was almost canceled, but luckily they found a plane and I was able to get it. I ended up getting home at like 1 a.m. on Tuesday or 2 a.m. or something like that. Anthony was supposed to pick me up and I had arranged it like weeks before with him. And then I texted him and he's like, wait, what? <laughs> and he sent me $30 in Venmo for an Uber. <laughs> It was like $57 or something to get home from the airport, $47 to get home from the airport, but I guess that was close enough. Um, so, wow, what an amazing, I want to thank like my whole family, you know, everyone that made it possible for me to be there, you know, for Tammy, uh, for kind of giving the green light that she'd be able to hold down the fort for the weekend, uh, to my mom who went above and beyond with chipping in for the trip which she didn't have to do as a birthday gift 
and to Anthony who contributed and uh, my mother-in-law, really everyone, my dad who took me to the airport and then watched Paula while Tammy was at work on Monday. Just everything. It was just perfect. And thanks to Joe Buck and to Drew Brees and to all 53 members of the Saints and Sean Payton for kicking the Bucks' ass. I mean, what a great, great trip. And what a bow it put on a lousy 2019 for me. Um, it was everything I hoped it would be. And uh, I'm just a blessed and appreciative guy. I really am. Um, you know, sometimes I think I get... Well, I won't go into that now. But I'm really a blessed and happy guy. And I can't thank everyone enough. Oh